Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, I'm your host, Simon. I'm here. One of my writers, in this case, Kevin. Thank you so much, Kevin. has written me a script. I've never read it before, but I'm definitely vaguely familiar with this one. And I think I know that it is particularly dark. It is particularly long. So settle in, grab a cup of coffee. I have no coffee here. At some point during today's episode, I'll take a break and a coffee will magically appear next to me here on the desk. Um, Or a glass of wine or whatever you're doing. It's 9.30. Oh, it's 10 o'clock in the morning here already. So uh, it's uh, not not time for me to to have wine. That would be weird. It's kind of like... Enough rambling. Let's jump in. I've never read this before. That's the format of the show. Is there anything more wholesome than a little girl or boy playing with their dolls? Sure, boys tend to call them action figures, but we know that they're the same thing. The only difference between them is that Barbie has over 200 jobs requiring about 50 different PhDs, while G.I. Joe only ever had one job. Hoorah! Unfortunately, there is nothing wholesome about the subjects of today's episode. Fair warning, both to you, Simon, and our listeners, that this episode is going to get pretty rough, and it's going to start almost immediately, long before any of the murders take place. Okay. Strap in, everybody. The b from hell. In order to fully understand Paul Bernardo, we need to at least somewhat understand his parents, Marilyn and Kenneth. Oh, what a surprise! I wonder where this is gonna go. The subject of today's episode, in a section called the b from hell, which uh, Jen, who edits the videos, thank you so much, by the way, please beep out that b because I'm having an absolute nightmare with demonetization lately, to the point that it's like. I don't know what's going on with YouTube, but suddenly they're very sensitive about just about everything. So we have to tread very carefully these days. I apologize to all of our podcast listeners where that doesn't matter at all, but you have to deal with bleeped out words anyway. And what was I saying? Oh yeah, so uh, what a surprise that the, 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 the antagonist of today's story probably has parents who screwed him up a little bit. Let's see. Marilyn was the adopted daughter of a successful lawyer and his wife, and she's said to have come from a good home. But because her father was a lawyer, he understood that there was something far more important than love or happiness, and that's money. You're goddamn right. No, I mean, like, seriously, though, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's like things, now that I've got kids and stuff, it's like things, my my kids, of course, they care about money in their sweet little child way of like, oh, money buys ice cream. Dad, can I have this coin? Can we use it for ice cream? And I'm like, well, you've not got a very good understanding of the price of things because no, that's not enough to buy ice cream. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, no, they don't care about money. They just, they just want to be loved, which is so sweet. Yesterday, just out of nowhere. It's just like, it was one of the, like my kids, of course, like if I say like, I love you, they'll be like, I love you, dad. But just out of nowhere, just like we're playing. And my daughter, who's like three, she just says, I love you, dad. I love your heart. And I'm like, oh, what? That's so nice. <laughs> it almost brought a tear to my eye. It almost brings a tear to my eye thinking about it. It was so sweet. Oh my God. I'm just, I, I know this episode is going to be so horrible. So I don't know. Just there's that nice little moment. Oh, God. Marilyn was considering marrying a high school sweetheart, Bill, that her father would not allow because Bill did not have the means to support her. <laughs> oh, the past, everybody. Instead, her father pushed her to marry another man that she had known, Kenneth Bernardo. Ken's father was a successful business owner, and Ken was going to college to become an accountant, which meant that he'd be able to provide for Marilyn. That's pretty messed up. Yes, it is. But Marilyn was always grateful that she'd been adopted into such a well-off family, so she complied with her father's wishes and in 1960 married Ken Bernardo. Had Marilyn's father 
father been aware that Ken's father was abusive to both his wife and children, perhaps he would have made a different decision for her. Yes, maybe he would have. Or maybe he'd just be like, nah, nah, it's worth it, love. For the money. <laughs> After their marriage, Ken wasted no time in becoming a physically abusive and alcoholic. This completely destroyed her self-confidence as she would tell her friends how thankful she was that Ken had loved her enough to marry her. Shit like this is so f***ed up. It's just, is this, this isn't gaslighting, is it? It's like, but it's like this mental abuse where it's like, uh, it always strikes me as like, or, or perhaps before I started really diving into this true crime stuff or, you know, before growing up a bit, that people would stay in these abusive relationships. And then it's, but the reality is it's so much more than the physical abuse. It's this mental abuse, this like diminishing of a person that makes them think, oh no, I deserve it. It's like, what the f*** is happening? It's crazy. Of course, her friends noticed what a drastic change in personality she was exhibiting, but there was nothing that they could do. Um, friends? Yes, there is. Yes, there is. It's called counseling your friends to uh, leave their abusive partner. Like, if someone you know is in a really shitty relationship, maybe sit them down and be like, have you thought about how shitty your relationship is? Obviously, much more, much more tactfully. But friends, this is what friends should do. Isn't that what friends are for? In 1961, Ken and Marilyn had their first son, Dave, and the following year they had a daughter, Debbie. Paul would be born two years later, but not without considerable drama. While Marilyn may have been unwilling or more likely unable to leave her husband, she still sought refuge from the constant abuse. And it was in the arms of her former boyfriend, Bill, that she would find that reprieve. It's unclear exactly when Ken became aware of the affair, but he seemed to accept it and chose to be listed as Paul's biological father on the birth certificate, even though this wasn't true. And though I say he accepted it, I just mean he didn't divorce Marilyn and leave her alone with the three kids. I don't imagine the drunk abusive piece of shit was particularly forgiving of her getting pregnant by another man. But it wasn't just the family drama that complicated Paul's birth. There was a lack of oxygen to his brain in utero, resulting in, being, resulting in him being born with aphasia. Aphasia is a disorder. Thank you, Kevin. I'm like, oh, I better explain it, otherwise I'm going to have to pretend I know what aphasia is. Wait, isn't that that thing that Bruce Willis has? Doesn't Bruce Willis have aphasia? The thing that is wrong with his brain? Which is so sad. Bruce Willis is such a legend. I miss him. I mean, not personally. I don't know Bruce Willis. But I mean, like, I miss his acting in movies. Aphasia is a disorder that affects the language portion of the brain, making it difficult to speak and understand written or spoken language. It can be caused by any sort of damage to the language processing centers of the brain, including from stroke, tumors, or in the case of Paul, problems during development. I think that is what Bruce Willis has. Because he has the language problem, right? Bruce, I'm looking it up. Willis, aphasia. Oh, he does have aphasia. Aphasia diagnosis. Since you know, frontotemporal dementia. Oh, it's so sad, Bruce. Oh, it's like Die Hard. One of my favorite movies. Specifically Die Hard 2. I love the one at the airport. This was only made worse by another physical defect he was born with, where his tongue was mostly fused, fused to the roof of his mouth. Although Paul would eventually get surgery to free his tongue, followed by speech therapy to learn, help him learn to speak, for years he was only able to communicate with grunts and points. By the time Paul was six years old, Marilyn and Kenneth's marriage was becoming increasingly strained. Marilyn managed to track down her biological sisters, and she would visit them on weekends, leaving the kids alone with Kenneth. Oh yeah, she was adopted. I forgot that. Allegedly, anyway. 
It's a bit unclear whether she genuinely found her siblings or if it was just a cover story that she used to get out of the house and see her old boyfriends. But even when she was home, she had moved into the basement to stay as far away from her abusive husband as possible. The division amongst their parents deeply affected Dave and Debbie, but the younger Paul seemed completely unfazed by it. He was likely too young to understand that what was going on at his house wasn't completely normal. The only part that seemed to affect Paul at this age was that Marilyn had become so withdrawn, depressed, and eventually agoraphobic that she neglected her children. They would often go without food or clean clothing, which meant that he was the smelly kid in school. Nobody wants to be friends with a smelly kid, and this not only crushed Paul's self-confidence, but it stunted his social development. It also meant that since he didn't have any friends, there was nobody to tell him that what was going on at his house wasn't normal, but it was completely horrific and criminal. Oh my. Wait, what's going on? I mean, I know that the husband's abusive to the wife, and that's obviously criminal, but I get the feeling there's more here. You see, Kenneth had no reason to care that Marilyn spent her days hiding from him in the basement because he had his eye on other girls, including his daughter, Debbie. Um, what the f***? During family movie nights, he'd sexually abuse her in front of the rest of the family. Debbie also took to sleeping with empty cans and food wrappers all over her bed and her room so that she would wake up if Kenneth tried to enter the room while she slept, and she had to always make sure the blinds were drawn when she got dressed, or else he would be outside her window. Um, doing things that are a word I can't say because of YouTube's demonetization policy. Thank you, YouTube. But um, let's just say he was doing things to himself, which is beyond fucked up. Kenneth's unforgivable behavior wasn't just restricted to Debbie. Neighbors would catch him prowling around in his pajamas, trying to peek inside girls' bedroom windows, and in 1975, he was charged in connection with abusing another child. He wound up pleading guilty to one count of indecent assault on a female under the age of 14, a crime for which he received a suspended sentence and two years of probation. How about when you do things to kids who are younger than 14 and your own daughter, you go to prison forever, or just execute you. Just get rid of you permanently. That would be good. <laughs> Jesus. I mean, <laughs> I maybe not execute him, but he does belong in that, like, pedo prison. Like the one that Louis Thoreau went to visit, where they put all the pedos. Like, lock him up and throw away the key. This almost certainly would only help to further distort Paul's view of the world. Paul had already grown up thinking that everything that happened in his house was normal, and now he was being shown that even if it wasn't normal, it certainly didn't carry with it any consequences. Yeah, great lesson there, society. Well done. Good, good move. Suspended sentence for, for, for the sick Around the same time as his father's arrest, Paul became friends with three other boys in his neighborhood, Van, Alex, and Steve Smyrnas. They were always together, both around the neighborhood and in their local Boy Scout troop. By this point, Paul was beginning to become more social. He had an outward appearance of always being happy and smiling, and all adults loved him because he was such a beautiful and cheerful child with his bright blue eyes and dimpled cheeks. He was polite, well-behaved, excelling at school, which made him the sort of child that every parent wished their own kids could be more like. Which is remarkable considering how extremely ruined this kid's home life is but i get the feeling in a minute kevin is going to tell me but underneath this facade was a monster <laughs> but underneath all of that was obviously something much darker there we go paul had developed a bit, a bit of pyromania and he and the smyrnis brothers began setting fires nothing major mind you they were just using magnifying glasses to set fire to kit twigs and kindling considering that paul was only 11 at the time and his friends were of similar ages i wouldn't necessarily find this too unusual yeah i mean <laughs> i don't know if it's unusual or whatever but me and my like me and my mate we used to love like burning <laughs> i remember there was this uh there was like a sailing club 
uh, but he was, I didn't, I wasn't a big sailing person, but he was sailing all the time. And we'd, we'd like go sailing and then we'd go into the forest and we'd build like a fire and we'd blow shit up. Like um, we'd find like deodorant cans or whatever. We'd put a deodorant can in the fire and then hide behind a tree. And it, Bye! You know he's a pyromaniac. We must have been like 12, 13 maybe. Maybe that is unusual, but fortunately, it didn't turn into me being, you know, an arsonist. Which is nice. It's definitely something I did as a kid. Okay, that makes me feel better. I was like doubting myself for saying, wait, was this unusual? Was I a pyromaniac kid blowing up things in the forest? No, but every kid does this, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> Please? Probably when I was younger than Paul was, but it's also not something I made a habit of. Just like, yeah, it's not like we did this every weekend. <laughs> Just like I imagine many other kids did, I tried this once to see if it really worked, or if it was one of those things that only happened in cartoons. Oh, with a magnifying glass? Sure. I can't say with certainty how often Paul and his friends were starting fires this way, but the fact that it's always cited as a key aspect of his childhood would lead me to believe that they did it with disturbing regularity, rather than just once or twice for the sake of science. Yes, okay. In 1979, at the age of 15, Paul began high school. By this point, his life had changed dramatically from his early school years. He was no longer the smelly kid that had trouble communicating. Once he learned to talk, he pretty much never shut up, and in high school, he was regarded as a silver-tongued devil. Of course, just because you were in a new building, that didn't mean his old classmates had forgotten who he was. Paul was in a few fights early on in high school, but he suddenly shot up to six feet tall and began lifting weights. As it turns out, bullies try to pick fights with people they know they can win against. With Paul now at a quickly able to defend himself, the fighting stopped and he was able to start doing what he did best make everybody love him. At the end of his freshman year of high school, Paul began dating his first girlfriend, a classmate by the name of Nadine Brammer. She was the first girl that he slept with, but whatever joy he felt was quickly going to come crashing down. You see, there's still the matter of Paul's father, Bill. Paul was completely unaware of it, but there was another man out there somewhere that was his biological father. They'd even been in the same room together many times. Marilyn had occasionally taken Paul to the McDonald's in Kitchener over an hour away. Every time they went there, Bill would be sitting in the corner so that he could see his son. He had begged Marilyn for the chance to at least see Paul, but they agreed that Bill would never speak a word to him. Even though Paul had never had any suspicions about his life, at the age of 16, he was about to find out. There was a fight in the Bernardo household, the details of which are unclear. While there are wildly different accounts of who was fighting over what, the end result was that Marilyn told Paul that Kenneth was not his real father. This was devastating to Paul, who immediately ran out of the house and went to see his friend Van. He arrived at his friend's house practically in tears, and he explained what had happened. Paul pointed out all the facial similarities between Kenneth and his brother Dave, saying how his face was different from both of theirs. The revelation seemed to break him, and he claimed that he now understood the resentment that he had felt from his father for his entire life. Well, uh, that's also because your father's a prick. I mean, the, uh, the, the non-biological father. Not only was this a crippling blow to Paul's psyche, I <laughs> this wouldn't be a blow to my psyche. I'd be like, wait, I'm not related to that piece of sh win. The Bernardo home had always been a nightmare, especially for Debbie, but daily life was about to get much more tense. Paul would constantly call Marilyn a big fat cow, a a If she ever asked him to do anything around the house, his reply was simply off, even if there was company present. In turn, Marilyn began referring to him as the from hell. Things were no longer going well with Nadine either. Kenneth may not have been Paul's biological father, but he was still the man that raised him. It's no surprise then that Paul was extremely controlling in his relationship with Nadine. She wound up leaving him for Steve, one of Paul's closest friends. In retaliation, Paul took everything of Nadine's that was in his house and set it on fire. His relationship wasn't the first time that he was seen to be taking after Kenneth either. From the age of 10, Paul had begun amassing a large collection of pornography. 
That's a little young to be stockpiling porn, but it's not the craziest thing. About 10% of the world's forests are in Canada, and everybody knows that the woods are absolutely littered with porno magazines. Oh, this is occurring in Canada. I was just like, you know, for some reason it was in America this whole time. Maybe he just started the collection by chance after finding some in the woods. What is with? I just don't understand this. But it was true when I was a kid. It seems to be true for Kevin as well, who's in America. And it seems to be true for Canada as well. Why is there porn in the woods? You really don't know, do you? Why? Why, well, why will he be walking through the woods and there'll be a porn magazine there? It's just, it's very weird. Of, poor, of course, maybe people listen to this like, Simon, you know why there's porn in the woods? And I'm like, no, I don't. Are people like doing things in the woods? Like, why? <laughs> What's going on? Of course, Paul didn't stop with just magazines. When the printed images weren't enough, he decided to take a page out of his father's book and just peer into girls' windows. One woman caught him when he was 10, but decided not to tell his parents because Paul seemed so embarrassed. Later, he would be caught again with the victim, saying in her report to the police, like father, like son. Paul didn't have any other important relationships through the rest of high school, but he certainly had the attention of women. Despite how things had ended with Nadine, thanks to his good looks and charm, Paul felt like he could have any girl he wanted. He wasn't alone either. Everybody who met him thought that the girls would simply do anything for his attention and approval. And if everybody seems to agree that you can get any girl you want into your bed effortlessly, uh, well, what better alibi could there possibly be? The Scarborough Paul graduated high school in 1982, and from there, his life started to get really busy. He would be attending the University of Toronto that fall to begin a degree in accounting, just like his father, but he still had an entire summer to kill. He needed to make some money, so he picked up a couple of jobs, both of which he'd continued doing while in college. One of his do jobs was smuggling cigarettes from the United States to Canada. That's not a job. <laughs> that's, a, that's a criminal enterprise. I'm surprised that they were cheaper here than in Canada. Uh, here... Kevin means the US, especially since he was crossing the border into New York, which is currently the most expensive state to buy cigarettes in. But it was a different time. Yeah, cigarettes got cigarettes are really expensive. I don't really know how much cigarettes are these days, but they used to be like five, six quid a box when I was a kid. Let's see how much are cigarettes. How much do cigarettes cost? UK. Oh, ten pounds thirty. Oh wait, I'm sorry. New MET. What the hell's MET? It's probably some special tax for cigarettes. Rothman's Super King Blue 20 pack, £10.90. That's a lot of money. How much do cigarettes cost New York? $10.53p. That's cheap. That's much cheaper than the UK. Average price in New York City, $15. Okay, so they're about the same price as in the UK. I feel like cigarettes are one of those things that's like, tax the shit out of them. Like drugs, cigarettes, petrol, gambling. Tax the shit out of that because it's just stuff that's not good for society or people and people get addicted to it and have to do it anyway so yeah <laughs> i'm all for that let's go also i don't do any of those things so uh, <laughs> it directly benefits me he would move the smuggled goods with the help of the Smyrnis brothers, as they were a family of petty criminals. One of the crimes they enjoyed, and possibly the most Canadian crime ever, was trading contraband for access to illegal fishing on private property. Paul's other job was working for Amway. Oh, if you're unfamiliar with Amway. Oh, I'm not unfamiliar with Amway. Amway is um, what some people who aren't me, who definitely aren't me, I would never say this about Amway, but it being, you know, something in a similar shape to some famous structures built by the Egyptians. Some people would say that, not me. 
Short for American Way, it's a multi-level marketing company. Yes, a multi-level marketing company. That's what it is that sells health and beauty products. As an MLM, it's legally distinct from a pyramid to scheme. Very importantly, legally distinct. And they have paid tens of millions of dollars in settlements around the world so as to avoid being ever found guilty of being a pyramid scheme. So let's just leave it at that. Yeah, yeah, of course. Definitely not that. Anyway, Paul was enthralled by the sales culture of the company and he dove head in for, and he dove in head first. He began buying any books and taking that he could from famous motivational speakers and get-rich-quick gurus, and he was taking their lessons to heart. He also realized that many of the same techniques that worked in sales could work in dating. One such technique that he and Van would employ was to simply lie. <laughs> yeah, how to persuade people of things that you want them to believe. Well, how about just lie? Just lie! And also, this guy's going to be a good salesman, because we've already talked about how he's a silver-tongued de devil and he's so charming and good-looking. People are going to want to buy shit off this guy. The friends would go to bars and lie to women to get them into bread to great success. During this time, Paul also began to tell Van about his sexual desires. He had developed a lot of darker sexual fantasies involving force, humiliation, and degradation. But amongst all his fantasies, the one that excited him the most was the idea of his very own virgin farm. That sounds pretty f***ed up, to be honest. He would buy his own plot of lands where he could bring virgins to rape them and breed more virgins to use. What is going on in your brain? He admitted this to Van, and the two remained friends for another 10 years or so. <laughs> if my mate came to me and was like, Hey Simon, I'm thinking about starting a virgin farm. I'd be like, oh, what's that? What's a virgin farm? What I'm going to do is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get virgins, bring them to my virgin farm, where I'm going to R-word them and create more virgins, which I will then R-word. I'd be like, okay. <laughs> I need to, we, okay. <laughs> We're not friends anymore for one, and maybe I need to call the police is what I think. For the next few years, Paul would continue with both his jobs, attending college and picking up girls. He would enter into relationships, and at first the girls would seem to be willing to do anything to keep him happy. But eventually, his violent and abusive behavior would become too much and they would all leave him. Maybe he told them about his virgin farm. Each relationship became shorter than the previous one as Paul was becoming increasingly aggressive and controlling. His girlfriends would describe the things that he did to them in bed. Paul, during sex, would choke them with cords or hold knives to their throat. He would also engage in aggressive, uh, it's probably another word I can't use, but um, uh, another type of sex with them, ostensibly without their consent. This was his favorite type of sex, probably because it was painful and humiliating for an unwilling participant. For the rest of the episode, any time he assaults someone, just assume that this particular act is a major part of it. And of course, Paul would also threaten to kill the girls he dated if they told anybody what he had done to them. There were other threats as well, such as making a girl pose nude for Polaroids, then threatening to post them on her church's bulletin board if she turns on him. While not physically abusive in public, his behavior towards his girlfriends was absolutely vile. He would constantly humiliate them publicly and in one instance made a girl wear a t-shirt that said hands off on the front and property of Paul on the back. Bro, did you get that t-shirt custom made? Like, that's fucking weird, bro. I mean, it's not its not the weirdest thing you've done. You, we, three paragraphs ago, we were talking about virgin farms. So I'm kind of like less surprised by this, but that is like still fucking weird. Some of you listening, though probably not Simon, might hear about that shirt and think there are certain situations where a person could see something like that as kind of cute, but I promise you this wasn't one of those situations. Yeah, I mean, no. No. <laughs> Don't do that. It's too weird. It's got too many. It's just, there's too many bad vibes there. Like, I get that you might think it's funny, but just think about the bad vibes because there's plenty of them. 
Paul began dating a girl named Carol, who he cheated on constantly. He then began dating another girl named Susie while still with Carol, and the two eventually found out about one another. But Paul was so controlling, manipulative, and abusive that both of them stayed with him, even after finding out that he had two girlfriends. This wouldn't last, and Paul found himself being slapped with a restraining order from Carol because of all of his obscene phone calls. Van's ex-girlfriend also took out a restraining order against him, so in a perfect world, the police would have already had some number of red flags associated with Paul's name. Yes, that that would be really nice. When Paul had nearly finished college, he had a bit of trouble with his girlfriend, Jennifer. Jennifer had zero interest in putting up with his shit or giving in to his demands, and she threatened to go to the police. He started to slow down with his dating, but he also realized that he didn't need to date girls anyway. To be clear, even though he had purposefully been in relationships, Paul was still raping and abusing the girls that he dated. At least some of these victims were in high school while Paul was in college, but they all knew him and were too afraid or ashamed to contact the police. Now, with his last victim threatening to do just that, he decided to cut out all of the relationship nonsense and skip straight to the only part that he cared about. Immediately after college, Paul began working as a junior accountant at Pricewaterhouse in Toronto, only a 20-minute or so commute from Scarborough. This is so f***ed up. Like, a accountant at Pricewaterhouse, which is like one of the big four accounting firms, or at least I think there would be four. There were like four. I went to university and I didn't do accounting, but I had a lot of courses with people who did accounting. And I think there were four big firms for accounting, at least in the UK, and Pricewaterhouse was one of them. So this is a big firm. This is a big job. The job paid very well, but he wanted more. Paul loved being a total f***ing scumbag, so he kept smuggling cigarettes as a way to make more money. How much money are you making smuggling cigarettes? You're an accountant at a big four firm. You're making a good salary. <laughs> Why would you risk it doing something illegal like this? He had his career in order, in a manner of speaking anyway, but he hadn't really been dating. So, it was now time for the police and the media to be introduced to the Scarborough Rest. But first, quick side note. It's important to remember to focus on the victims rather than glorifying criminals here. We all tend to be pretty vocal on this show about what disgusting pieces of the criminals are, unless it's a light-hearted heist episode, so I don't think we're in danger of glorifying the criminals here. Kevin, I don't- we were talking about his virgin farm, Kevin. I don't think we're in any danger of being like, oh yeah, no, Paul seems alright. He seems like a stand-up lad. It's just, you know, he's a bit- he's- he's charming and he's nice. And he's an accountant at PwC. No, 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 he talked about a virgin farm. We know he's a f***ing scumbag. <laughs> However, in terms of remembering the victims, I won't be including the names of any of these rape victims. I was only able to track down some of their names, and those were hard enough to find that I've assumed it was intentionally made difficult. As such, it's only the later victims in this episode that will be named. Thank you, Kevin. Always nice to leave it respectful. Paul began his spree on May the 4th, 1987. He stalked a 21-year-old woman from a bus station as she was walking home uh, before attacking her in front of his parents' house. Only 10 days later, he would strike again. This time, the victim was a 19-year-old who he assaulted in a parent's backyard after following her home from the bus station. And this attack would last for over an hour. This was important for a couple of reasons. First, Paul liked to take his time and take what he wanted from the girls. But more notably, he wasn't being at all careful. Sure, he chose people that were alone, but he wasn't taking them anywhere, not even to his car. The attacks were happening over extended periods of time in their yards. It may have been night, but it obviously wasn't so late that the buses had stopped running, so it would hardly be impossible for a neighbor or the girl's parents to hear the commotion outside and catch Paul in the act. For whatever reason, he seemed to think he was invincible, probably because he had witnessed the same sort of behavior from his father and the man had faced no repercussions for his actions. Yeah, he was up to some properly depraved shit and he got a two-year suspended sentence, or a suspended sentence and two years of probation, whatever that means. But he didn't go to prison. So this has sent a message to Paul being like, just, you don't have to obey the law. <laughs> 
there's no consequences. Paul showed such little regard for the possibility you could ever be caught that he never even bothered to wear a mask or a condom. DNA evidence may have been brand new, but it made world news the previous year when it was used in court for the first time in a case involving Charles Arward, no less. Paul would attempt to strike again just a couple of months later, savagely beating a woman that he found at a bus stop. But he ran away when she started to fight back. The next attack on September the 29th was different from the others. This was the only time that he broke into a victim's house to attack them. After breaking in, Paul went to the bedroom of his target, a 15-year-old girl, and jumped on her back, covering her mouth with his hands. He pulled out his knife and threatened her and bit her ear, but fortunately the girl's mother came into the room and screamed, causing Paul to flee. Unfortunately, somebody else would be wrongfully convicted of this attack and serve 16 months in jail, not being exonerated until 2006. That's terrible. Like, the 60 months in jail is bad, but until 2006, this was in the 80s, late 80s. So they were going around with a, I'm sure on a sex offenders register and as an ex-con for 20 years, which must have affected their life enormously. Jesus Christ, I hope they got a lot of money for that. Although Paul had begun stalking and R-wording strangers, he still enjoyed going out with the lads and using his charm to pick up girls. I mentioned earlier that Van didn't seem particularly bothered by Paul's desire to have a virgin farm, even though that's the sort of thing I normally think would make someone question the fre their friendship with whoever said it. Yeah, maybe. However, it turned out that Van also had a thing for young girls, and one night in October, the pair decided they were going to go out in search of some. Dude, you know your friends. You know you're in a... <laughs> I'm thinking about starting a virgin farm, Van. Van. Yeah, yeah, sounds like a good idea, mate. Let's do that together. <laughs> Jesus Christ. And there was no better place in Scarborough to find underage girls than the restaurants at the local Howard Johnson Hotel, I guess. I thought hotel bars and restaurants where you went to find middle-aged people searching for a one-night escape from a stale or loveless marriage, but these two were the experts and they found exactly what they were looking for. Okay, <laughs> this is very bizarre, and I have the exact same opinion as Kevin, I think because I've seen too many movies. The 23-year-old Paul looked across the restaurant and was immediately struck by the sight of a beautiful blonde girl eating a grilled cheese sandwich with her friends. He and Van went to introduce themselves, and it was there that Paul would meet 17-year-old Carla Hamolka for the first time. Carla worked part-time at a pet store and was in town for a pet store conference. Carla and Paul had an immediate attraction, and they wasted no time in going back to her room. Van wasn't surprised, as Paul had no difficulty attracting women. What shocked him was that Paul had asked for Carla's number, something he never did. Paul and Carla would see each other again the next month, and they started to develop a serious relationship. Paul would drive to visit her twice every week, and her parents didn't have any problem with their teenage daughter dating someone six years older than her because he was just so charming and handsome. Yes, that's, that's weird. He's 23, she's 17. <laughs> like... Yeah, what one i assume that's a, is that illegal in canada i don't know it's definitely illegal in the states right i'm not sure what the law about i'm pretty sure that's illegal in the uk as well although i think there's like it's not as cut and dry as america but i, I don't know i'm not an expert it's not a situation i've ever had to deal with <laughs> so good um but yeah it's still a bit weird isn't it Carla had always been exceptionally beautiful, and she finally had someone that looked like the Ken to her Barbie, and yes, the fact that they were both extremely attractive is why they were named the Ken and Barbie Killers. Although, that's like the least, like, the least bad reason. I mean, like, there's plenty of other ways they could be called. They're called the Ken and Barbie figures because they make their, they take their victims and then they put plastic in them to make them look in, like they're dolls, which, like, I don't know, that's straight out of a horror movie. Although, even if the two looked like the perfect couple, Paul didn't think they were yet. Or rather, he didn't think that Carla was yet. If she was going to be perfect, Paul was going to have to ruin, to run every aspect of her life for her. 
Carla had gone through a bit of a goth phase, and that was definitely over. She could not dye her hair and had to remain her natural blonde. She would also have to style her hair the way Paul told her to, dress the way he told her to, only talk to the people he permitted, have the opinions he told her to have, and only eat when he told her to. That meant a lot less grilled cheese and a lot more salad, since Paul enjoyed telling her how fat and ugly she was and made her call herself those names, including in bed. Paul is such a up individual. But despite having control over every aspect of Carla's life now, there was still one thing Paul was disgusted by that he couldn't change. She hadn't been a virgin before they met. It was the sort of thing that he would normally have found unforgivable. A previous girl he dated briefly said how Paul angry was at her for not being a virgin, and one night even drove her somewhere secluded so that he could whip her with a belt while forcing her to apologize for having slept with anyone before him. But Carla was submitting completely to his will and his dark sexual fantasy, so he wanted to stay with her. He would just have to continue finding virgins elsewhere. Of course he would. Yeah, of course he would. While dating Carla, Paul continued his string of assaults. On December the 16th, 1987, he targeted a 15-year-old victim while she was getting off of a bus. It was after this attack that the media officially coined the term Scarborough Rapist, which is, of course, a double-edged sword. It's good for people to know about very real threats like this, but narcissistic serial offenders also thrive off this sort of attention and are emboldened by it. Only one week after that attack, on December the 23rd, Paul struck again. This time he R-worded a 17-year-old girl with the knife that he used to threaten his victims. After that, it was off to Miss, uh, Mrs. Ogre, Ontario, to spend Christmas with his lovely new underage girlfriend of two months and her family. Now, what exactly is an appropriate Christmas present for someone you've only been seeing for two months? I've got absolutely no idea, and I'm stressed out thinking about being in that situation. But what I can say is that Paul and Carla both missed the mark given the circumstances, though one much more than the other. Oh God, what did he get her? What did this psycho get her? Ah, for Christmas, Paul gave Carla a teddy bear, a gold necklace, and a $300 dress. Today, that's either $800 or $600, depending on whether the original number was in US or Canadian dollars, but either way, that is insane after only two months with someone. It's almost as if he was trying to buy her obedience and compliance by giving her expensive presents and taking her to fancy restaurants. He's also quite well off, isn't he? He works at PwC, he smuggles those cigarettes. It just seems like he's flashing the cash a little bit. I wouldn't say it's outrageous. I'm assuming he's quite well, like, assuming he's quite well off. Carla's present wasn't nearly so extravagant, but she got Paul the thing he would appreciate most other than her virginity. With a minor rewrite and a completely different boyfriend, it's the sort of present that actually seems pretty normal for a 17-year-old to give their significant other. Carla presented Paul with a coupon that read, Upon presentation of this coupon, Carla Leanne Hamalka will perform sick perverted acts upon Paul Kenneth Bernardo. These acts may be chosen by the recipient of the coupon. Now I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that Paul didn't get to open his present in front of the rest of the family. Paul, Paul's so f***ed up, they'd be like, I'm redeeming this now. Oh, Paul. Paul knew exactly what sick, perverted thing he wanted from Carla. He wanted to have his favorite type of sex with her, but Carla refused. This created a lot of tension between the pair for the next couple of months, but they didn't break things off. They continued to see each other, and Paul continued to make further demands. For some reason, he demanded that she give his penis a nickname, and she settled on Snuffles. The pair were only seeing each other twice a week, since Paul lived in Scarborough and worked in Toronto, so they would write letters. In one letter sent shortly after Christmas, Carla included another coupon, because the first one had worked out so well. The coupon read... The bearer will receive one cute little blonde 17-year-old girl to put on her knees and between his legs and satisfy his wishes. The coupon was accompanied by a letter, which I will now read. 
Dear Paul, you're a dream come true. You are the best, my big, bad businessman. I've been fantasizing what playful things to do with your body all day. Then there's multiple paragraphs of really explicit stuff, including repeated use of the name Snuffles, which I, uh, Kevin's, Kevin's, Kevin wrote that. And I'm glad he cut it out because I don't want to read that. With you in my life, I feel complete whole. With you by my side, nothing can go wrong. You have opened my eyes to a new way of thinking and being. I will love you forever, no matter what. This letter might just speak to Paul's skill at manipulation and control. It had only been about four months since they met, and already they'd had a major disagreement over things that Paul wanted to do to her that she refused to go along with, yet Carla was willing to proclaim her love for him to such an extent. She was even well aware that one of the things he liked about her was that she was underage, and instead of being creeped out, she leaned into it in an attempt to regain the affection that she was losing by failing to comply with his demand from Christmas. It was around this time that Carla's friends happened to find a pair of handcuffs in Room. They weren't your typical teehee we're so naughty fuzzy handcuffs with an emergency release button that could be pressed by the person restrained either. They were legitimate police handcuffs. When questioned about them by her friends, she just laughed it off and said that Paul liked to play rough in the bedroom. I mean, fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, that's not particularly unusual, even if it's not like the official pair of like sexy time handcuffs. Okay, I'll let I think that's okay. Carla's friends had never seen her as happy as when she started dating Paul, so they didn't really think much of it at the time. But Carla's happiness wasn't going to last. In February, Paul told her that he was thinking about breaking off the relationship, since she hadn't acquiesced to his demands. Given no alternative, Carla finally gave in. When Paul's parents were out of town on vacation, he brought Carla to his house, where he had a surprise in store for her. She had already agreed to Paul to let him do his favorite thing to her, but he decided he wanted to up the ante. He took out his Polaroid camera and photographed her, performing explicit acts on herself with a wine bottle before they engaged in sex together. While Paul was doing what he wanted to her, he wrapped an electrical cord around her neck and yanked it to pull her back and expose her neck, against which he placed an eight-inch hunting knife. He told her not to worry and that they were just props that excited him. In the end, Paul got to do whatever he wanted with her, because that was what he always did. Now, two more important things happened around this time. In March, one of Carla's friends, Lisa, made another discovery in her bedroom, and that was the one that she wasn't able to dismiss as easily as handcuffs. Lisa found a piece of paper in Carla's handwriting known as The List. It started off by instructing her to eat healthy, exercise daily, and have good hygiene. That's all good advice and pretty normal stuff. I'm honestly surprised Lisa bothered to continue reading instead of just getting bored and putting the paper back. But as she continued reading the list, it started talking about her relationship with Paul. To quote it, Never let anyone know our relationship is anything but perfect. Don't talk back to Paul. Be a perfect girlfriend for Paul. If Paul asks for a drink, bring him one quickly and happily. Remember you're stupid. Remember you're ugly. Remember you're fat. I don't know why I tell you these things. Because you never change. It's just like... It's just this... It's like father like son, isn't it? It's just dark. Given what we know about Paul so far, that might not be too shocking. I mean... We, Kevin, you, you, you said like many, many pages ago now that he wanted a virgin farm. So anything that this guy does, I'm like, he wanted a virgin farm. Kevin, <laughs> nothing surprises me anymore. It's absolutely horrific, but sadly, it isn't surprising. What is shocking is that this was also around the time that Carla began to express her desire for Paul to marry her. And, oh yes, it was also around the same time that the police created the Scarborough R-wordist task force, and they already had a ton of evidence. The task force had DNA samples from his victims, eyewitness testimony, and a composite sketch based on the victim's descriptions that looked a lot like Paul. Police even had a detailed report from a victim that contained accurate descriptions of Paul, the type of car he drove, the type of knife he used, and where he lived. 
Unfortunately, computers weren't commonplace yet, so the handwritten report of the victim's statements just got buried under other paperwork for years. Likewise, the task force never chose to publicly release this sketch of their suspect. Paul continued facing zero repercussions for his actions, just like his father had, so he just kept on going. In April, he would claim another victim, a 17-year-old girl. She tried to fight back, but he punched her several times before dragging her between two houses to R-word her. On May the 25th, Paul planned to strike again. This time, however, the police were waiting for him. A very clear modus operandi from which it only ever deviated once. He would follow girls that were traveling home alone from a bus stop and attack them. The police correctly decided to stake out bus stops in the area where the attacks had been taking place. And on that night, a uniformed police officer saw Paul lurking under a tree to monitor the bus stop. The officer gave chase, but Paul managed to escape without the police officer getting a good look at his face. Unfortunately, though, this didn't deter him at all. His next victim would come only five days later, but instead of in Scarborough, he chose to commit the crime in Misuagua while visiting. How do you pronounce that name? Misuagua. Gonna look it up just in case it comes up again. <laughs> it's Canada, so it could have like a weird pronunciation because, you know, the French stuff. Let's see. Mississauga. Okay. Sounds like Mrs. Saga. Okay, easy. Carla's family had no idea what sort of monster they'd invited into their home. Instead, they all absolutely adored him. Yeah, because he's got that facade. He's got that charming silver tongue. And it's like, but beneath, there's a monster. Her parents thought he was so handsome, well-spoken, and had a bright future as an accountant. And most importantly, he seemed to make Carla happy. Her two little sisters loved him as well, especially the youngest sister, Tammy. Paul was so charismatic that the family seemed to believe anything he told them, even when he talked about his upcoming career as a rap star. He had recorded an album under the name Young Hype, and had Carla's family convinced that record labels were trying to fight over which one would get to sign him. Okay, he really did this? God, that sounds terrible. That was emphatically not true, which would be immediately clear to anyone who had listened to his so-called music. His debut album, titled Deadly Innocence, was objective garbage. His songs were all just him explaining, even though he was gorgeous, he was still hard as f***. A young hype was going to murder you and bang your wife, and he'd never be arrested because he was too pretty and innocent looking. Oh, I've got some news for you. <laughs> <laughs> like at some point we're going to get into well, you getting arrested. I assume. I'm pretty sure that's how this ends. I'm not going to focus too much on his lyrics, since at the eventual trial, the judge ruled that song lyrics couldn't be admitted as evidence. That's a hotly contested topic that comes up in courts all too often, and I think the judge made the right call. It's worth well, interesting, right? Because it's like, uh, it, you could just say, like, oh, I was just talking, you know, I was trying to look hard for my rap songs about murdering people or whatever i didn't really murder anyone and i'm i would imagine for most things that's probably true but also like don't rap about your crimes but while the album shouldn't be used as proof in a court of law i think it does speak to how delusional and out of touch with the reality paul was although so far he's committed a lot of horrible crimes and he's absolutely gotten away with it every bit of the way so I don't say he's out of touch with reality with that. It seems like he's very aware of the reality that he's not going to face any consequences. Although, ultimately, he will. Part of it, of course, was just bravado. But against all logic and reason, part of him really thought he was going to take off as a rapper, despite the fact that his lyrics were trash and he had no flow. The rest of the summer was pretty quiet, but by October, Paul needed to feed his urges again. He tried to claim another victim, but she was able to fight back and escape. However, this was also the first time that his violence escalated. Yes, I realize everything he's done up until now was already extremely violent, but he went even further. The knife he brought with him had always been an intimidation tactic to threaten and subdue his victims. This was the first First time he actually used it, stabbing the fleeing girl once in the thigh and again in the butt, resulting in her getting 12 stitches. 
October was also Paul and Carla's one-year anniversary, which Carla commemorated by writing another letter for Paul, though this time there was no coupon attached. She wrote, Thank you for the best year of my life. You enriched my life beyond belief. Followed again by a bunch of really explicit stuff about snuffles. Paul thanked her by taking a second girlfriend in Toronto, Anna, though this relationship was short-lived. In November, Paul attacked another girl in the backyard of her house after following her home. This was his seventh R-word as the Scarborough R-wordist. Do I really have to do this? Maybe it's just easier to beep out these words, but it's just, I'm really, it just feels so awkward. And I'm just being forced into it. And it sucks. Anyway, not counting the girls that successfully fought him off or his supposed girlfriends from before he started attacking strangers. Come December, it was time for Paul to spend Christmas with Carla's family again. It was around this time that he started paying more attention to Carla's sister, Tammy, who was about to turn 14 and who had a little schoolgirl crush on Paul. He demanded that Tammy not have sex with anyone, which is something I don't even have words for. But again, Kevin, he wanted a virgin farm. We already know. It's like nothing, nothing, it disgusts me, but it doesn't surprise me. He's all kinds of f***ed up. But shockingly, for the next six months or so, everything seemed to be pretty normal, or at least as normal as anything could be in this ridiculous and highly abusive situation. There's nothing normal about this. Carla was about to graduate high school, and she wanted to go study criminology at the University of Toronto to become a police detective. She had told people for much of her life that she wanted to be a cop, but Paul immediately shut it down. He told her that he was not going to let his wife work a job as dangerous as that, and that was the end of the conversation. They may not have been married or even engaged yet, but Carla had already said that she wanted Paul to marry her. Even though he was crushing one of her childhood dreams, his choice of words allowed her to hope that maybe he really would marry her if she kept obeying him. Besides, she also loved animals and had enjoyed her job at the pet store enough to travel to pet store conferences as a high school kid, so she decided to skip college and get a job as an assistant at a veterinarian's clinic in St. Catherine, nearly two hours away. Why? So far away? Are there no, I know Canada's big, but are there no local jobs? Is everyone just traveling hours for work in Canada? With Carla's future now decided for her, and all that was left was her graduation party. Once that was done, she could go and begin her career far away from all her family and friends. But the party didn't go so smoothly. Paul had too much to drink, and he began accusing the boys at the party of flirting with Carla. This culminated in Paul essentially fighting the entire football team from Carla's high school. Obviously, this was not a fight he was going to win, though sadly it was one he was going to survive. <laughs> Savage. Paul supposedly got a good couple of hits in, though for the most part he just got his own face bloodied. Yeah, you're trying to beat up a whole football team? And American football players are big. It's a sport that requires big people. My cousin played American football. He is a large, large man. But he kept going and seemed to be enjoying the sheer violence of it all, regardless of who was winning. The only reason the fight seems to have ended is because everybody else kind of stopped. It was one of those things where a lunatic is clearly going to get his ass kicked, but kicked, but tries fighting anyway, and everyone else finally decides, forget it, man, this is crazy, and walks away. Carla would end up moving to St. Catherine for her job, so Paul made the two-hour drive every weekend to visit her. But with her out of the way for most of the week, it left him plenty of opportunity to continue on with his crimes. He attacked a girl in late June, but she was able to fight back. She screamed to alert the neighbors, and Paul was left to run away with scratches all over his face from her resistance. The next couple of months were pretty eventful for Paul and Carla. Although she had been isolated from her family and high school friends, it was easy for her to make new friends. When Paul visited, he got to spend time with them all and got to know these new friends. At first, they were all jealous of Carla 
Carla. She had this rich, handsome, charming older boyfriend who took such good care of her and would always go to the bar to get everyone's drinks and pay for them whenever they were all out together. However, one of the times he did this, the girls noticed that there was some sort of film of white specks on the top of their drinks. At first, they joked he was trying to roofie them. But when the same thing kept on appearing after every drink Paul bought them, Carla's friends had the sense not to drink anything he gave them. Yeah, it's like, Ah, yeah, you try to roofie us. <laughs> wait, are you trying to roofie us, bro? That August, wait, what is this, though? What was this? <laughs> what was he doing to them? You really don't know, do you? That August, the couple took an impromptu vacation to Disney World, though Carla lied to her parents and said they were going to visit Paul's grandparents. <laughs> Both of these are wholesome activities that you, uh, that it's fine. <laughs> And I have absolutely no idea why she did that. Her family were already very permissive when she was in high school, and now she was working a real job and living a good drive away. Maybe she thought that Tammy would hear the words Disney World and excitedly ask if she could come too, and she was afraid that Paul would say yes, but I don't think there's a definitive answer as to why she lied or as to how she was able to get an entire week off from a job that she'd only been at for a couple of months, so far for that matter, but maybe that only sounds unreasonable because I'm American. No, like taking a week off when you've just started a job is probably not the best idea. <laughs> Although, what you should do is be like, oh yeah, I've got a commitment. Like when you go for the interview and they're like, well, we're going to offer you the job. Be like, there's one thing I already have, like a pre-existing commitment for this week. And then what can they do? Anyway, Paul and Carla spent 10 days living it up at Disney World and documenting everything. Paul had upgraded his Polaroid camera to a video camera, and the couple loved recording absolutely everything. Nearly none of these tapes are available anymore, but it sounds like Paul never went anywhere without it. He also spent a lot of time that vacation recording himself and Carla in bed together while wearing mouse ears. Okay. But as soon as they returned to Canada and Carla was back at her job, Paul had to strike again. He followed a 22-year-old woman home from the bus station, but this time he decided to follow her into her apartment. He proceeded to abuse her for two hours. In November, he'd attack a 15-year-old girl again after following her home from a bus station. Considering that Paul had nearly been caught shortly after the creation of the task force over 18 months earlier, it's a bit weird that the police stopped staking out bus stations. It's not like Paul was a master criminal who changed up his M.O. and he had only committed one crime outside of the immediate vicinity of his house. Maybe he was just getting lucky and happened to hit where the cops weren't, but with how much the authorities already knew, it's heartbreaking that he couldn't have been stopped sooner. Oh, he could have been stopped sooner. They just didn't stop him sooner. December of 1989 was going to be one of the biggest turning points of Paul and Carla's lives. First, Carla quit her job at the veterinary clinic. She hated it there, and her boss was accusing her of stealing ketamine from the clinic. <laughs> Holy shit. Isn't that a drug you lock up? She wound up getting a job at another clinic, this time as a full-time vet technician rather than just as an assistant. Falling upwards there, Carla. This meant more money, more responsibility, and full access to the clinic's drugs. Paul also quit his job, even though working at the accounting firm paid well, he hated his white-collar existence. He had never really wanted to work in an office, he wanted to be a big-money hustler. Instead of making good money doing honest work, he was going to commit to smuggling cigarettes over the border as his full-time job. <laughs> Mate. You work at PwC. You're a white-collar accountant. It's like literally the most, I mean, not the most boring job, but it's a boring job. Like, I know I've had friends who work at these big accounting firms. It's not interesting. They're usually stuck in the basement at some company looking through their paperwork for hours. It's not fun. Um, and he's like, no, but it pays well. And he's like, no, I'm going to quit that to do something completely different and risky. It's just such a contrast. 
During the first week of December, the two took a romantic trip to Niagara Falls before Carla had, st had to start up her new job. They had a wonderful time, and on December the 9th, as the couple were taking a romantic walk through a miniature Christmas village, Paul pulled out a unicorn music box. Hung around the unicorn's horn was a diamond engagement ring that Carla had been waiting for. They wasted no time in beginning to plan their wedding and even purchased Carla's wedding gown in Niagara Falls before returning home. Of course, weddings are expensive, so Paul was going to have to at least briefly take another accounting job to save up money for the wedding and honeymoon, but that was future Paul's problem so he could deal with it in January. <laughs> well, why doesn't he just smuggle more cigarettes? Obviously, that's a lucrative and smart business to be in. For now, they were going to enjoy their engagement and Christmas together. There was only one more thing that Paul had to do before Christmas. It was time for the penultimate victim that would be attributed to the Scarborough R-wordist. On December the 22nd, Paul assaulted a 19-year-old woman in the stairwell of an underground parking garage. His victim would remember the attack vividly as was able, and was able to describe the attacker in detail. But police thought she was confused. There were things she described that didn't make any sense, so the police chalked it up to being paranoid from the trauma and, much to their detriment, disregarded most of her claim. Wait. <laughs> police. 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 How about you listen to the victim of a crime police how about that that would be good wouldn't it that'd be a decent thing to do that would be good policing a couple of days later it was time to spend christmas with carla's family again and share the news of their engagement everybody was thrilled because the two seemed so happy together they were a pair of ken and barbie dolls come to life paul was everything that carla had ever dreamed of and carla was almost everything that paul had ever dreamed of the two felt like an almost perfect match except for one glaring problem that paul just couldn't get over carla wasn't a virgin when they met she had given her virginity to someone else, and Paul felt like he owed her. He was a raving psychopath, but in his own mind, he at least seemed to believe that he loved Carla and wanted to be with her. Now, we'll get to more of this later on, but just be clear that the first part of that was not opinion or hyperbole. Paul was a clinical psychopath. So, in the warped reality of his psychopathy, Paul believed that he was in love with Carla, but he needed to make right with what was owed to him. There was no way for Carla to change the past and get her virginity back, so she was going to have to give him the closest thing she could. could. Carla was going to have to give Paul Tammy's virginity. What is going on in your f And I know I don't, you don't even need to ask that question, because he has a broken psychopath brain. But what the f*** is going on in your broken psychopath brain, Bren, you f psycho. In January 1990, Paul began a job at another accounting firm in Toronto. As much as he would have preferred to just keep smuggling cigarettes, he needed the reliable, high-paying job to fund his future wedding. That was the plan, anyway, but within two months, he got bored and just stopped showing up for work. Instead, he tried to supplement his smuggling income by starting a worm-picking business because Canadians really love their fishing. This plan absolutely didn't work, and Paul quickly found himself $25,000 in debt. Holy shit, how much capital do you need to start a worm-picking business? Isn't that just going out and finding worms and selling them to fishermen? What are your startup costs? <laughs> he decided that the best solution was to declare bankruptcy to eliminate his debt, go on unemployment, and just make his money illegally for the time being. <laughs> Good plan! <laughs> He had also become obsessed again with all those motivational speakers that he listened to while working for Amway. Paul believed that he could do the same thing they did, he just needed to find a way to put his own spin on things. But this was never going to work either. Sure, he had the looks and charm, but as a motivational speaker, his life story would have been a lot more like Matt Foley than Tony Robbins at this point. Who is Matt Foley? I know who Tony Robbins is. He's the big guy who tells people to get motivated. Um, Matt Foley fictional character from the saturday night program performed by chris farley he's a motivational speaker and then it cuts off 
who exhibits characteristics atypical of someone in that position. Whereas motivational speakers are usually successful and charismatic, Foley is abrasive, clumsy, and down on his luck. The character was popular in its original run and went on to become one of Farley's best-known characters. Well, there you go. First appeared in 1993. That's a throwback. In May of that year, Paul committed his 11th attack and the final one that would be attributed to the Scarborough attacker. His victim was a 19-year-old woman that he found at a bus stop, and she vividly remembered everything about him. Her details were too clear to disregard like the previous victim, so police quickly got to work making new a new composite sketch of the attacker and creating a full-color rendering of it. Good job, police! Let's go! Job to do! The victim described her attacker as six feet tall, 180 pounds, medium muscular build, tan skin, blue eyes, blonde hair, slightly crooked nose, small mole under the nose, no visible tattoos or scars, well-groomed, good teeth, smell good, wore a gold ring with three diamonds on his right hand, a class ring with a red stone on his left hand, and just on and on. Holy sh photographic memory much? It was an extremely detailed description that resulted in an image that looked almost exactly like Paul. The resemblance was undeniable, and anyone that had ever met him would have immediately recognized him. And unlike back in 1987, this time the police decided to release their sketch to the public. It had been over three years since Paul's random assaults began, and the police were only now realizing that the people the people should be aware what the attacker might look like. Well done, look! Look what a great step! Jesus. How is he going to avoid this? Surely this is what is going to get him caught, but we're only halfway through today's episode. So what's going on? While all that had been going on, Paul also started becoming increasingly obsessed with the idea of Tammy. Carla thought it was just a fantasy, so she decided to humor him a little bit to keep him happy. While Tammy wasn't home, the two would have sex in her bed, with Paul pretending that Carla was Tammy. The blinds in her bedroom also mysteriously broke, allowing Paul to peer in through the window at night and videotape her getting changed. Paul was also spending a lot more time at the Hawker family home, because not having or wanting a job tends to create a lot of free time to relax by the pool and get drunk. One day, Paul was sitting by the pool when he realized he drank the last beer. He offered a go to go across the border to pick some up, and because of her crush, Tammy jumped up and asked if she could go with him. Paul naturally agreed, and the two drove away together for hours. They didn't return until after midnight, by which point Carla was panicked. She obviously knew about Paul's desires, but she thought it was just a harmless passing fantasy, not something he would act on. When it took so long for Paul and Tammy to return, she became horrified that she was going to lose control of the situation and lose the man that she felt she was supposed to marry. Jesus. Your mind has been twisted by this douchebag. If Carla was going to keep Paul happy so that he wouldn't leave her, she felt that she had no choice but to give him the thing he wanted most. She was going to have to give him Tammy. Because of her job at the veterinary clinic. No, 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 no. Carla had access to certain drugs that were effective on humans as well as animals. She was smart enough not to just steal the medication from the clinic, as that would get her caught almost instantly. However, she had the authority to call in orders to the pharmacy that she could pick up without the clinic ever knowing. I mean, if someone was paying close enough attention or doing an audit, then they might have figured it out. But nothing was being stolen from inside the clinic, so there was no reason for anyone to suspect a thing. When the family went on vacation together that July, Carla brought some Valium with her that she had taken from work. Paul and Carla spiked Tammy's spaghetti dinner, Jesus Christ, and once she fell asleep, Paul f***ed her for about a minute until she started to wake up. He was ecstatic that he had gotten Carla to give him what he wanted, but he needed more. His assaults normally lasted for an hour or longer, so if Carla really wanted to make him happy, she'd have to figure out a way to keep Tammy unconscious longer. He wanted to be able to take his time without Tammy remembering any 
of what had happened. But there was just one problem waiting for Wall back home. The police had just released the composite sketch, along with a $150,000 reward for any information leading to the Scarborough attacker's arrest. He... How is he going to escape this? I mentioned that anyone who saw the sketch would immediately recognize it as Paul, and they did. Steps tips started coming in from Paul's former co-workers at Price Waterhouse, from ex-girlfriends, from a teller at his bank who saw him only once in a while, and from Tina Smyrnis, the wife of one of the Smyrnis boys, Alex. How are you going to possibly escape this? While I haven't found any evidence that Alex got up to anything as indecent as Paul and Van had together, he still knew a lot of their stories, and by extension, Tina did as well. They called it in to the police and were asked to come in for an interview in September. At the same time, the police found that victim statement that had been lost under paperwork three years earlier. It had the same description of Paul, matched the car he drove at the time, and the attack was barely two blocks from his house. It seems like they had everything they needed to bring Paul in for interrogation, which they did, but it still took them two months to come knocking. On November the 19th, police showed up at the Bernardo residence while Paul wasn't home. They left their card with Kenneth and told him to have Paul give them a call. What are you doing? If you think this guy is such a terrible criminal as he is, surely he's a flight risk. If you see that police card and you're this dude who's committed these heinous crimes you're like hi police yeah i was just wondering uh, you left your car to my house <laughs> what's up and they're like oh we're calling about the tv license no 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 they know what's up and uh that's when you have to go to mexico and get your face changed you have to get a new face put on otherwise you're going to prison forever you might think that Paul would have ignored this invitation, but he strolled into the police station the next day to be interviewed. While he admitted that the sketch did look a lot like him, he seemed otherwise unconcerned with what evidence the police had against him because he had the best defense there was. Paul essentially explained to the cops, Come on guys, look at me. I've had tons of girlfriends, I have a beautiful fiancé, and I'm hot as hell. Why would I ever need to attack someone? The police looked him over, and they couldn't help but agree, just like Wright said Fred, Paul was too sexy for this interview. Um. That's not how it works. This guy is obviously broken. It doesn't matter that he's handsome. What are you doing, police? Just, yeah, DNA him. I just saw the next line says DNA. And I'm like, they got tons of DNA. Just just DNA him. Why not? What do you got to lose? But just to be sure, they asked if they could take some DNA samples anyway. They couldn't compel him to without a warrant, but Paul voluntarily gave them hair, blood, and saliva samples to clear his name. I don't think that he properly thought that through, since the DNA was going to do the exact opposite of clear his name. But he was f***ing insane, so whatever. He's <laughs> like, I'll give you DNA to clear my name. How are you? I don't, you, you not understand how DNA works, Paul? It's going to link you to all of these crimes. The answer to that question is no. And then when you leave, go down to Mexico and get a new face, Paul. What's going on? Unfortunately, this technology was still new, and there weren't a lot of people able to actually test the DNA. Their best option was to send samples to a lab in the US for testing, but best-case scenario was going to take 70 to 90 days. But this was anything but the best-case scenario. Not only were these labs typically backed up anyway, but the police had already shipped DNA samples from over 130 suspects, samples that would simply be tested in chronological order, and those 130 samples would also frequently get pushed to the back of the line as DNA testing that the labs had to do for murder cases was considered a higher priority than DNA from sexual assault cases. It would also be over two years before Paul's DNA samples were finally tested, and that was entirely too late. Christmas was right around the corner, and Paul wanted his Christmas present from Carla. The Schoolgirl Killer The Valian 
hadn't been enough, so Carla had to find something stronger. After researching all of the drugs that she had at her disposal, she finally settled on Halcyon. Halcyon is a benzo similar to Xanax, but it's stronger. It's generally prescribed as a very short-term solution for severe insomnia, and she knew that it would do the trick. Carla's mother had taken Halcyon before, and it completely knocked her out. But she didn't want to take any chances either. This had to work. So Carla acquired a bottle of liquid halothane to make sure that Tammy wouldn't wake up while Paul was abusing her. Halothane is a strong general antiseptic that is usually administered through a gas mask in a very low concentration, usually only one or two parts halothane per 100 parts oxygen. Of course, Carla didn't have the equipment at her house to properly, properly administer a drug like this. She figured that if she soaked a rag in halothane and held it kind of close to Tammy's face, then she'd get the right mix of oxygen to ensure that Tammy wouldn't feel or remember anything. You've got a very weak understanding of science. On December the 23rd, 1990, Paul and Carla were ready to put their plan into action. The Hormorkas allowed Tammy to drink a little bit around the holidays. Not a ton, but it was okay for her to have one or two eggnogs with a little rum in them, which isn't terribly unusual. After dinner, Paul fixed a drink for Tammy, adding in the crushed-up halcyon. Paul loved recording everything with his camera, and he was certainly going to film Tammy sipping on a drink that was going to give him what he wanted. Suddenly, out of nowhere, Tammy yelled, These guys are trying to poison me, and ran off to her bedroom. At first, the couple thought they were caught, but nobody seemed to hear her. Eventually, she came back downstairs to watch a movie with Paul, Carla, and the middle sister, Laurie, and Paul began making her more drinks. Laurie told Paul to stop making drinks, but then she went up to bed, leaving Tammy alone with Paul and Carla. The couple waited, ignoring the movie completely, as they intently watched for Tammy to fall asleep. As soon as she did, she was placed on the floor, and Carla went to get the halothane while Paul set up his video camera. Carla soaked a rag and placed it directly over Tammy's mouth and nose while Paul attacked Carla. Carla kept checking Tammy's pulse and breathing, and at one point added more halothane to the rag to ensure that Tammy wouldn't wake up before Paul had finished. After some amount of time, Tammy began to vomit. They quickly rolled her onto her side so that she wouldn't choke and cleared her airway but she'd stopped breathing. They put clothes back on her and carried her to Carla's bedroom in the basement. Paul tried to perform CPR while Carla called 911, but Tammy was unresponsive. The sound of ambulance sirens woke up the rest of the family. So Paul rushed to calm them down while Carla watched her sister being wheeled out of the ambulance with a breathing tube down her throat. A police officer started to question Paul, Carla, and Laurie while the parents went to the hospital. The officer felt there was more to this than just a girl drinking too much, especially because of the large chemical burn on the side of Tammy's face. Good for you, officer. You look into this properly and proper deep. Carla had such a high concentration of halothane on her face that it caused the burns, but she and Paul claimed there was a rug burn from when they dragged her from the couch across the carpet to perform CPR. While the officer was interrogating the three, a call came in for other officers at the hospital. Tammy was declared dead on arrival. Upon hearing the news, Laurie immediately ran upstairs crying, and the police officer went after her to console her. When she came back downstairs, Laurie and Carla hugged each other and cried, while Paul sat on the other couch, rocking back and forth while he slapped himself in the face, screaming. Despite their apparent grief, the three still had to go to the police station to be questioned. After hours of waiting, they were each interrogated separately. The officer who was questioning them immediately noticed that the versions of events told by Paul and Carla were entirely too similar. They told the exact same story, even using much of the same language and word choice. It's the sort of thing you only hear where people have hastily colluded to get their story straight for the cops. Oh, I guess like before the ambulance arrived, I'm like, wait, they had a time to collude? That was when. It was a major red flag, as was the chemical burn. The coroner didn't believe for a second that it was a rug burn, but the police had fa hadn't found the halothane at the scene, so they didn't know what it actually was. Without any other evidence to go on, the coroner ruled Tammy's death accidental, and despite their suspiciously similar stories, Paul and Carla wouldn't be questioned in her death again. Tammy's funeral was just a couple of days after Christmas. 
At one point, Paul was seen stroking Tammy's hair in the open casket. Carla was repeatedly seen fixing Tammy's hair and clothing. Without knowledge of what had truly happened, people could easily see these as very odd and somewhat questionable coping mechanisms. So while it's odd enough for people to have noticed or remembered, it's unlikely that anybody tried to do anything about it. But there was something else, to me, that is way creepier. Before the coffin was interred, Paul and Carla slipped an invitation to their wedding written out to Tammy into her coffin. Uh, is that that again like outside of the context of this i wouldn't think that was weird i think that's just like oh they're sad about this i would see that as like fine wait is that weird it doesn't seem super creepy it just seems sad except obviously knowing that the what actually happened is fucking disgusting shortly after the funeral carla's parents went away for a bit i wouldn't call it a vacation they just needed to not be in that house for a while likewise laurie went to stay with her grandparents leaving paul and carla alone in the house showing absolutely no remorse for what had happened paul decided it was time to take another victim but this wasn't his usual mo instead of following the victim to her house he instead picked up a hitchhiker and brought her to carla's house where he filmed himself abusing her afterwards he brought her back to his car and dropped her off on a deserted road this wasn't the only plan that Paul had with the empty house. He was still obsessed with Tammy and wanted to relive his fantasy. In a video known as the Fireside Chat, because Paul filmed absolutely everything, he and Carla put on Tammy's clothes and pretended to be her while they had sex in her bed. There was a lot more on the tape than just that, but we'll come back to that later. When Carla's parents returned, they wanted Paul out of the house. He was on worse terms with his parents than he'd ever been, so he had essentially been living with the Hamarkas. They had just lost their daughter, and whether they had any suspicions about Paul or not, they wanted family time alone so that they could grieve. They also wanted Carla to start scaling back the wedding that she was planning for that June. Paul and Carla decided that the best thing they could do was move in together in St. Catharines, closer to Carla's work. They were also about to get married, so it made sense for them to rent a house together, and having their own place would give them the freedom to do anything that they wanted. They moved into this new place, on February the 1st, and it took them a couple of months to settle in and get everything set up. I'm sure it could have been done much more quickly, but I suspect that Paul wasn't the type to help out much with anything. But once they were settled in, Paul decided to continue his utterly worthless life the way he always had. At about 5.30 in the morning on April the 6th, Paul was out in search of a new victim. He stumbled upon a 14-year-old girl who was up early to train for a rowing team and waited for an opportunity. The girl had become briefly distracted when a car drove by and the driver waved at her, so Paul grabbed her and pulled her up into the bushes. He assaulted her and then told her to wait there for five minutes while he disappeared. It was another deviation from his usual MO, not that it really mattered. The level of police incompetence we've already encountered is absolutely staggering, and this was no longer in Scarborough. Law enforcement agencies were especially notorious back then for not communicating with one another, so by moving cities, he may as well have moved countries. There was no way anyone was going to connect this to his previous crimes. June was about to be one of the busiest months for Paul and Carla, not just because of their wedding. To start, Carla made a new friend by the name of Spike. Spike was a three-foot-long iguana that had been brought into her work to be put down. It had come from a home of abuse and neglect, so she decided to bring it home and nurse it back to health. She succeeded and decided to keep Spike as a pet. One night, Van Smyrnas and his girlfriend Joanne came over to visit. Everyone was just hanging out and having a laugh when suddenly Spike got a little anxious and bit Joanne's finger. Paul was immediately enraged, saying that the iguana couldn't just go around biting people. They needed to be disciplined, so he took Spike and Carla to the bedroom to teach him a lesson. I don't really know what Paul's magic plan was to housebreak an iguana, but it didn't work, and Spike just bit him as well. Good boy. Paul grabbed Spike and took him to the kitchen, where he threw the iguana onto the cutting board, chopped its head off, and yelled at Carla to clean up the mess. Jesus Christ. I know not, nothing surprises me, but it is just like... What the f 
man. As always, she did oh, what she was told, skinning and gutting her former pet. Paul then tossed it onto the grill and served it for what had to have been the most uncomfortable dinner of Van and Joanne's life. Joanne understandably wouldn't take a bite, and Van just kind of picked at his. But Paul ate his entire plate, with Carla eating most of hers. Jesus in Christ. I guess they already knew that this guy was weird. But can you imagine going to your mate's house and he beheads his pet and then serves it to you for dinner? Jesus, man. On June the 7th, Carla invited a friend of hers over to visit. The friend, known only as Jane Doe, was a 15-year-old girl that Carla had met a couple of years earlier while working at a pet store when Jane was only 12. Jane was given drinks laced with halcyon, and when she passed out, she was filmed being attacked by Paul. Carla had again used halothane while the girl was unconscious, but this time it didn't result in her death. When Jane woke up and went home and was sick in bed for three days, she thought it was just the flu. Part of Paul couldn't have been happier with how things went. Instead of killing their victim, this time she'd only gotten a little sick and hadn't suspected a thing. It wasn't exactly the way he envisioned his virgin farm, but if they could keep inviting girls over like this, it would be a dream come true for him. But another part of him was furious with Carla. Why couldn't she have gotten it right the first time with Tammy, so that he'd still have her as well? A week later, Paul went to go pick up his marriage certificate before the wedding and then drove across the border to make a cigarette run. He delivered the cigarettes to Van back in Scarborough so that Van could fence them. That whole route is at least four hours of driving, so it was already going to be late by the time he got home, but he decided to take a little detour in Burlington to steal some license plates. Oh, okay, there you go. Another criminal enterprise. Unbeknownst to him, the city of Burlington had recently been struck by tragedy. A car accident had claimed the lives of multiple high schoolers, and the wake was that night. Following the wake, some of their classmates had gone to the woods to drink and remember their friends, and they were only getting home now at around 2am. Among them was 14-year-old Leslie Mahaffey. Leslie had been going through a bit of a rebellious phase, as teenagers are wont to do. She would frequently disappear from her house or stay out past her curfew, and her parents had gotten sick of it. They told her if she stayed out past curfew that they would lock the door. And when the group arrived at Leslie's house, she discovered that the door to her house was in fact locked. She told her friends that it was fine and that the other door would be unlocked, so she sent them on their way. Once her friends were gone, she discovered that the other door was locked too. I don't blame the parents, and I hope they don't blame themselves, but I do have a lot of mixed feelings about that. On the one hand, it's important to enforce boundaries you're trying to set, but on the other, their teenage daughter had just been to a wake for multiple of her friends. If there was ever going to be a time to cut the girl some slack, it was that night. Leslie walked to her payphone at a nearby plaza to call her friend Amanda to ask if she could stay the night there, but Amanda said no. She thought it was a bad idea because her little sister was sick, and the last time Leslie had spent the night there, Leslie's mother gave Amanda's mother hell over it. Amanda kept telling her to just go home and ring the doorbell so her parents could let her in, but Leslie sounded worried and insisted that she didn't want to go home. While she was walking back to her house to figure out how she'd get inside, she spotted Paul. He told her that he was planning to break into a nearby house, then asked if she wanted a cigarette. She said yes, so Paul took her to his car, where he said the cigarettes were. They got inside the car, and he gave her a cigarette as promised. Paul asked her what her name was, and she told him it was Leslie. When she asked for his name in return, he pulled out a knife from under the seat and told her that it didn't matter what his name was. He then made her put one of his shirts over her head and drove her back to his house. When Paul got home, he brought Leslie inside and then went upstairs. He instructed Carla to stay in bed and just be quiet for a while. He then went back downstairs, set up his camera, and began to word Leslie. For the next 24 to 36 hours, Leslie would remain a prisoner in the house while being tortured and abused. The entire time, she'd been blindfolded by Paul's turtleneck. Even when she was allowed to take a shower, the turtleneck never left her head. 
Despite being a victim of sadistic torment, Leslie was able to remain mostly calm, likely because of her blindfold. She had no idea where she was or who was attacking her, and Paul had been very encouraging. He told her what a good job she was doing, at one point stating, The next two hours are going to determine what I do to you. Right now, you're scoring perfect. As horrible as everything was, she almost certainly believed she would survive the ordeal as long as she stayed blindfolded and didn't fight back. That's why as soon as Leslie thought her blindfold might be slipping, she made sure to tell Paul. It was the smartest thing to do under the circumstances, but you can't reason with a psychopath. The next day, Leslie's dead body was carried down to the basement so Paul and Carla could prepare their house for Father's Day with the Hamalkas. I really... I thought she would survive because it felt like we were being told the story from her perspective. The most heartbreaking part of Leslie's story, besides all of it, is the tapes. According to everyone who saw the tapes, Leslie's blindfold never budged. Carla's parents would spend about eight hours in their home that day with no idea what had just happened. The closest they came to discovering anything was when Carla's mother asked if she should go to the basement to get the potatoes. Carla cheerfully stopped her and said she'd do it. She retrieved a bag of potatoes that was on the floor next to Leslie's body, though seeing the body disgusted her and ruined her dinner. Oh, boo who. When the Homorkas left after dinner, Paul went to the store to buy bags and bags of cement. Leslie's body was dismembered and encased in eight different cement blocks. The next day, they drove to nearby Lake Gibson to dump the cement blocks into the lake. Seven were deposited into the lake, but at about 200 pounds, one of the blocks was too heavy for them to move, so they just left it on the shore. Just under two weeks later, on June the 29th, Paul and Carla were married in front of all of their friends and family. The celebration had not been downsized as Carla's parents wanted, and it was a lavish event with about 150 guests. Everyone was enjoying the reception, and the newlyweds danced together without a care in the world. But coincidentally, there was something else going on 15 miles away at Lake Gibson. While the reception was taking place, a couple of families had gone to the lake. One was a married couple who were enjoying an evening on the water in their canoe, and the other was a father and son pair who were fishing on the shore. As the canoe passed by the father and son, the husband began yelling something at them about a strange purple fish. The father was pretty annoyed by this since you're supposed to be quiet when you fish, but the couple kept on shouting at them. They said that when they were getting their canoe into the water, they tripped over a cement block that had broken open and it had some sort of weird-looking purple fish inside that they'd never seen before that kind of looked like human body parts. The change in wording suddenly got the father's attention and he went over to the spot that the couple were indicating. As Paul and Carla packed to fly away to Hawaii for their honeymoon, police were pulling the remaining blocks of cement from the water. When they were taken to the coroner, he had to use a hammer and chisel to free the body from the cement. It was so badly damaged that there was no way to determine the actual cause of death, and Leslie was only able to be identified by her braces. When Paul and Carla returned from Hawaii, they were picked up at the airport by the Hamalkas. On the car ride, the Hamalkas told them about the body that had been found in Lake Gibson. It had been major news, because St. Catherine was supposed to be such a safe area. Unfortunately, its reputation as a safe place combined with Paul and Carla's stupidity would actually wind up buying them more time. See, the police were working on the assumption that the killer couldn't have been from the area. The cement blocks had been discarded in water that was only three feet deep, and one of them didn't actually make it into the water. Surely anyone who was from the area would have known that if they went just 300 feet up the river, there was a bridge where the blocks could have been dumped into the water that was so deep nobody would ever find them. Tammy and Leslie were gone, but the couple remembered that they still had Jane Doe. The only problem they had to deal with was Jane's mother. 
She had become really suspicious when Jane went to spend the night with Carla and had come home sick. She also had a very obvious question of why the hell a couple in their 20s wanted to be friends with a 15-year-old girl. To alleviate her concerns, Paul and Carla invited Jane and her mother over for dinner. They thought it would help if they could show her they were nice, ordinary people who really just wanted to be friends with this underage girl. It didn't help. Paul spent the entire dinner complaining about his parents, and Jane's mother felt worse about the whole thing than before she got there. But she also wanted to take a realistic approach to things. Jane was about to turn 16, and it was going to be harder and harder to control her. If she pushed back too hard on this, Jane might wind up doing something even more reckless. Besides, Jane really seemed to like Carla, and she wasn't the one that made an ass of themselves at dinner. The three of them wound up hanging out together pretty frequently over the remainder of the year. On August the 10th, Jane came, Jane came over and was drugged again. While Paul was assaulting her, Jane suddenly stopped breathing, so Carla called 911. Two minutes later, she started breathing again, so they called 911 back and said, Never mind, everything's totally cool now. I'm genuinely shocked that this actually worked. In America, if you call 911 for an emergency, then try to say never mind, I'm pretty sure that they tell the first responders to drive faster. But this was... Is that true? Like, what if it's like, surely most of the time, that's totally fine. It's like, oh my God, he's choking, call 911. And then it's like, and he coughs it up. And then you're like, okay, I'm really sorry, but he coughed it up. Everything's fine. He's breathing again normal. Everything's totally cool. And he's embarrassed. The ambulance isn't going to show up, right? But this was too close of a call for Paul and Carla. If Jane died, they were going to need to find a new victim. Instead of drugging and attacking Jane, it was decided to just groom her instead. The couple took Jane to restaurants and to the theater, as well as spending time together at their house. One of the things Jane enjoyed doing when she wasn't with them was taking horse riding lessons. During one of those lessons, she mentioned to her instructor that Paul liked to touch her, and the instructor, in turn, told Jane's mother, excellent work. Jane's mother confronted Paul about this, but she didn't stop Jane from spending time with him. What are you up to, Jane's mother? <laughs> that is the point where you're like, yo, no, and also police. And horse riding instructor, maybe you could have also told, no, I th mm, mm, in that situation, tell the parents, and then you're like, cool, you guys obviously will deal with this by going to the police. Um, Should he have gone to the police himself? Should you go to the police yourself in a situation like that? Probably, right? But the dynamic they had created with Jane wasn't working as intended. Coercing and manipulating her worked to a point, and she would allow certain things to happen without resisting. But she wouldn't have sex with Paul. She didn't really want anything to do with Paul, she just wanted to be friends with Carla. Carla was a nice girl from the pet store that would always let her come and play with the puppies when she was 12. Paul was her creepy husband that would molest her, often in plain view of Carla. Shortly before Christmas, Jane decided that she had put up with enough. When she was over at Paul and Carla's house, she made it clear that she was not going to have sex with Paul. Jane was left alone while Paul and Carla slept upstairs, so she called her mother to pick her up, and she never came back. Excellent. Good. Good. I was, you know, things have ended much worse for other people in this story, so I'm glad that she just extricates herself and never comes back. Paul was not thrilled with this result, but Carla almost certainly was. She loved Paul and was ready to have children with him. She had spent years doing everything he asked so that she could make him happy, but she could still feel him pulling away over these other girls. She began writing him letters to try and win him back. In one such letter, she wrote, I want our love back. People think we're the perfect couple. We are. We've just gotten sidetracked. Even though we have our problems, I'm still so much in love with you. I know what happened to us is all my fault, and believe me, I am changing. I love you too much to lose you. But Paul was happier being sidetracked. He wanted more, and having one girl at a time wasn't going to satisfy his desires. His newest demand was for Carla to help him acquire 50 virgin sex slaves. Okay, still still got that virgin farm on his mind. What the f*** Paul? You sick f***. 
On April the 16th, the following year, the two went out hunting for a victim for Paul. Since they were explicitly looking for virgins, they decided that a Catholic high school was the best place to go. They passed the Holy Cross School and pulled over by the entrance of the nearby Grace Lutheran Church looking for someone to abduct. It was broad daylight and there would be witnesses, but it didn't matter. Paul had been assaulting girls and making money illegally for years, so he thought that nothing would ever stop him. When the school let out, Carla waved down Kristen French. Kristen was a 15-year-old Girl Scout, figure skater, member of the school's rowing team. She was an honor student who volunteered at a nursing home. When school had ended for her for the day, she wanted to get home, feed her dog, and then go to the East to dance with her boyfriend. Carla was holding a map and asked Kristen for directions. While she was distracted, Paul forced Kristen into the car at knife point before driving away. There were witnesses to the abduction. They, they might not have known who Kristen was, but Kristen's disappearance was immediately noticed by her family and friends. She had a very strict routine of always making the 15-minute walk home from school immediately so that she could feed and walk her dog. She was never late, so it took very little time for them to realize that something was wrong and for the police to know who they were searching for. Unfortunately, the witnesses dropped the ball. One of the witnesses was absolutely certain that the car Kristen had been abducted in was a cream-colored Chevy Camaro, but Paul drove a gold Nissan. With the police searching for the wrong car, there was nothing to stop Paul and Carla. When they got back to the house, the blinds had to be closed and all the phones disconnected before a blindfolded Kristen was led from the garage into the house. Paul took her upstairs to film himself abusing her while Carla made dinner. He kept feeding Kristen alcohol, and when she threw up, Carla came in to clean it up before finishing dinner. At dinner, they removed Kristen's blindfold. They ate a normal meal, as if nothing had just happened, with Carla talking to Kristen about her boyfriend Elton and the dog Sasha. After dinner, Paul took her back upstairs to torture her more while Carla cleaned the kitchen. When it was time to get some sleep, Paul wanted to give Kristen Halcyon to ensure that she'd sleep through the night, but Carla refused because Halcyon would sharpen an autopsy. The next day, Paul drew a bath for Kristen so that he could record her while she bathed herself. Then Carla and Kristen did each other's makeup while they talked about the different perfumes and cosmetic brands they liked. After more abuse throughout the day, Paul tied Kristen to a chair. He was going to get them some McDonald's for dinner, and he wanted to know what movie Kristen wanted to rent from Blockbuster for them to watch that night. While Paul was gone, Carla turned on the evening news, which featured Kristen's father begging for her safe return, causing her to burst into tears. Paul returned with dinner, then got back to torturing her, obviously. Kristen hadn't wanted to talk with Carla about boys and perfume while doing their makeup. She hadn't wanted to drink alcohol. She hadn't wanted any of this, and she was trying to play along in the hopes that she might survive. But she finally started talking back to Paul. Kristen was doing everything she could to make them happy so she could survive, but she was inexperienced and didn't know how to do the things he wanted. He started yelling at her for messing up, so she started yelling back, calling him a bastard. When he demanded that Kristen tell Carla that she loved her, Kristen replied, Carla, is that your name? The violence against her only increased after that, but the more violent Paul became, the more defiant Kristen became with her refusing Paul's orders by saying, some things are worth dying for. Kristen's last words, caught on tape, were spoken directly to Paul. I don't know how your wife can stand being around you. Jesus, man. Do they have death penalty in Canada? It's about they should bring it back for this bastard. The next day was Easter, and by the time Paul and Carla left to go spend the day with the homolkers, Kristen was already dead. Paul had considered just leaving her tied up at the house until they returned, but it was too much of a liability. Kristen's body was found naked in a ditch on April the 30th. The side road where Kristen had been dumped was in throwing distance of Leslie's grave, but the police thought the location was a coincidence. One had been dismembered and put in a lake, while the other thrown to the side of the road. They were different enough that almost none of the police thought that the crimes were connected, though the media would eventually dub the suspect the schoolgirl killer. 
But finally, and in spite of this gross oversight on the part of the police, things were going to come crashing down around Paul and Carla. You better go to prison for f***ing ever. Trouble in Paradise Kristen's body had been found on April the 30th, and the police immediately released a profile of the killer. Now, Van Smyrnis was Paul's best and oldest friend. They had known each other since childhood, so Van knew him really well. As soon as he saw the profile of the killer, he was convinced it was Paul. The two may have done a lot of illegal things together, including sharing a fondness for underage girls, but murder was a bridge too far. Van was already talking to the police on May the 1st to make sure they investigated Paul. Good for you. And about a week and a half later, police finally came knocking on Paul's door to ask where he had been when the two girls were kidnapped. He used Carla as an alibi and was able to charm his way past the police officers. He was just such a nice, good-looking, well-spoken man, so it was hard for them to think that he could have been the killer. Come on, police. You've got to see past that. You've got to be trained to be like, charming people can be psychos. It's a facade. Paul again voluntarily offered DNA samples. After all, it's not like anything came the first time he did so. The officers asked if he owned a Camaro and is happy to point out his Nissan. Just to be safe as they were leaving, they discreetly looked at his car from a further distance to see if it could be mistaken for a Camaro, and they concluded that no, it could not. When Paul went to Carla to gloat about how he had fooled some stupid cops yet again, she pointed out that maybe they were just playing him. Maybe they didn't believe a goddamn word he said and just wanted to lull him into a false sense of security so that when they came back with a search warrant, he wouldn't have thought to hide any evidence. Evidence like the countless hours of videotapes of girls being attacked that were just sitting in their house for anyone to find. They took the tapes and hid them in the insulation in the basement ceiling where nobody would ever find them. They also decided to legally change their name from the Bernardos to the Teals. Teal was chosen because it was the name of the serial killer in Carla's favorite movie, Criminal Law, although the name was spelled very differently there. Paul also changed his middle name from Kenneth to Jason in honor of the serial killer from every Friday the 13th movie except for the good one. Um, this is... What don't change your name if you're a serial killer, don't change your name to the name of a serial killer. What's wrong with you? The exact reason they changed their names is unknown, but there are three reasons that have been suggested, so it could be any or all of them. First, it may have just been done in an abundance of caution. If Paul Bernardo was going to be wanted for a bunch of crimes, it would be better if Paul Bernardo no longer existed. It's not like it would be impossible to find records of what they changed their names to, but it would still be an inconvenient waste of time that would slow everything down. Would it? Surely there's a pretty easy record for these to be like, why change this name? <laughs> like, if changing your name was a way to just like escape from stuff, then, uh, then, I mean, come on, <laughs> this is just silly. Next, Paul may have been trying to distance himself from his father, not just because Kenneth wasn't his biological father and they didn't really like each other, though surely that would have been a big part of it, but because Kenneth was a convicted sex criminal. He didn't really get punished for it, but it was still on record, and the further that Paul could get, the better. The final proposed reason for the name change is that Paul and Carla may have been a bit racist. They were supposed to be this ideal, beautiful couple with their blonde hair and blue eyes. Did they really want a last name that sounded so swarthy and ethnic? Wait, Hamolka? What sort of, like, ethnic swar- What does swarthy mean? I don't even know. It's a name of Czech origin. I was thinking it sounded a bit Czech. <laughs> Is that ethnic? 
Around this time, Paul and Carla began inviting another girl over to their house, Norma. Norma had been Tammy's best friend, and she liked hanging out with Paul and Carla. They were these cool adults that brought her presents and let her have alcohol and stuff, and she thought it was fun hanging out and doing stuff together. Carla had wanted to drug her so Paul could take what he wanted and they could move on with their lives, but Paul refused. Tammy and Jane had both stopped breathing when they were given halcyon and halothane, so he forbade the use of either. He wanted to attempt to groom her instead, like they'd attempted to do with Jane. December of 1992 was going to be one of the biggest turning points of Paul and Carla's lives. It always seemed to be December for these two. Despite Paul's efforts thus far, Norma was only willing to kiss him, and only so long as Carla was there and didn't mind, but she refused to go any further than that. On December the 13th, the couple took Norma for a night out. They took her to see a show, and then they all went to a hotel together. Norma was filmed doing car wheels around the room and kissing Paul a little bit, and after Carla passed out from drinking too much, he tried to get her to do more with him. Norma still wasn't willing to do anything else physical, but Paul did have one idea she was open to. The two grabbed a lighter and a can of hairspray, ran out into the hall, and lit a serving cart on fire before quickly running back to their room. After the alarm sounded and the hotel was evacuated, Paul gleefully recorded from the parking lot as the fire trucks pulled up to sort out the mess he had created. Just before Christmas, Norma came over again and was showered with a mountain of lavish Christmas presents. Paul was trying to do everything in his power to keep her with them without resorting to drugs. Then on Christmas Eve and Christmas, Paul and Carla went to the Homolka's house. It was mostly uneventful, except for Christmas Eve when they were trying to sleep. Carla had moved out, so she didn't have a bedroom anymore, and allegedly nobody wanted to sleep in Tammy's bedroom. I'm sure that wasn't actually true, but Paul wasn't going to admit that in front of the rest of the family. Instead, Paul and Carla spent the night with their sister Laurie in her bedroom. Carla quickly fell asleep while Paul and Laurie stayed up talking a bit. At one point, Paul told her that if she ever needed anybody killed, to just say the word and he'd take care of it. She chalked it up to just him just having too much to drink, but she was also absolutely terrified. The day after Christmas, Paul and Carla invited Norma over again, but this time she brought somebody with her, her boyfriend. Paul was not happy about this and demanded that Norma tell him she loved him in front of her boyfriends, which she very much did not do. She said that she didn't love him because he was too old for her and she already had a boyfriend, a boyfriend with whom she left, never to return to Paul and Carla's house again. Again, excellent. Good. This resulted in a lot of fighting between Paul and Carla. Paul thought he was going to have a new toy and he blamed Carla for ruining it. When Carla tried to say that she could have just put Norma out for him with Halcyon, he began repeatedly striking her in the face for even suggesting the thing he had explicitly forbade. When New Year's Eve rolled around, Paul left to go celebrate with some friends in Montreal to clear his head. While all of this was going on with Paul and Carla, two other things had happened that month that neither of them were aware of. Over in Scarborough, Paul's sister, Debbie, went to the police. She suspected that her father was doing the same thing to her four-year-old daughter that he had done to her, and she was absolutely not going to allow that to happen. As soon as I, if, if you were in a situation, as soon as I turned 18, I'd be like, get the fuck out of there and never go back. Never take your fucking kids to see someone who abused you. What's that? Just don't do it. She told the police everything that had happened to her growing up, and Kenneth Bernardo was arrested. Then, in Toronto, the Centre of Forensic Science finally began testing the DNA samples that Paul had provided back to the police in 1990. Good. Finally, let's go. The Arrest and Search for Evidence Paul had gone to Montreal to clear his head, but it didn't help that he was more angry with Carla than he'd ever been before. He believed it was her job to bring him virgin sex slaves, and any time she tried, they either died or Carla scared them away. Yeah, that's what's going on. That's, she's scaring them away. It's her. I mean, she is complicit in this, but it's you, Paul. You sick f**k. 
He grabbed a flashlight and began beating Carla with it, severely injuring her and leaving her with two massive black eyes. The attack was so bad that when Carla went back to work, she thought it would be believable to say that she'd been in a car accident. Her co-workers didn't buy it, and Carla's mother paid a surprise visit to her work on January the 5th after receiving two anonymous phone calls telling her to go look at her daughter's face. Carla admitted to her mother that Paul beat her and agreed to go back to her parents' house to be safe. She was supposed to go home, pack, and then Carla's mother would pick her up at an agreed-upon place and time. But Carla didn't show up. Her mother tried calling the house and then the police, but she couldn't get a hold of anyone. At around 9.30pm, she tried calling the house again and Paul answered the phone. He put Carla on the line and Carla told her mother that she was fine and to just go home and let it go. Her mother went home, but she absolutely didn't let it go. Her parents both came back the next day and happened to arrive when Carla was home alone. She was looking even worse than the night before. After the little incident with Carla's mother the previous night, Paul had taken her with him on a cigarette run and reportedly beat her the entire drive there and back. Carla's parents took her to a friend's house back home, and that friend was eventually able to convince her to go to the hospital. The ER doctor that treated her said that it was the worst case of spousal abuse had ever seen, and Carla was eventually convinced to go to the police. Carla was ready to turn on Paul and tell the cops everything about him being the Scarborough But what she didn't expect was for the police's questions to start turning to the topic of Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French. They had already suspected that the murders had been perpetrated by the Scarborough attacker, and they grew more suspicious when they saw Carla wearing the same type of Mickey Mouse watch that Leslie had been wearing when she disappeared. Her lawyer tried to get a deal of immunity in exchange for her testimony in the cases, but the prosecution was delaying as much as possible. They're delaying because they're building a case where they won't need your evidence and give you immunity because they want to lock you up as well. And you need to go to prison for a very long time because, yes... You are a victim of this as well, but you are also a huge perpetrator. Then, on February the 1st, Paul's DNA was finally matched to the Scarborough attacker. They had their man, and they could go and arrest him in a couple of weeks or so whenever they got around to it. <laughs> what? <laughs> I read that so seriously, but it's obviously a joke about their incompetence. What's going on? Arrest him now! Storm over to his house with men with big guns! Or police on horses whatever you do canada let's go to be fair this time the police actually had a good reason for something they did the dna evidence for paul as the scarborough attacker was airtight but the evidence connecting him to the murders oh, was flimsy at best they needed something more concrete and they were trying not to rely on carla she was portraying herself as being just as much of a victim as any of the other girls the compliant victim of a sadistic abusive partner who would beat her if she ever stepped out of line but the prosecution wasn't fully convinced good. They thought that she had been more involved than she had let on, so they wanted to avoid a deal until they were sure they had no other evidence. By leaving Paul free, it allowed them to place him under 24-hour surveillance and get a warrant to tap his phones. They wanted to catch him in the act to build a stronger case, but Paul wasn't doing much of anything at that point. He was just spending his days popping bills, getting drunk, and calling Carla to beg her to come home. On occasion, he'd even throw in some threats of suicide if she refused to come back. But despite being entirely self-involved, he did find time to write a statement for his father's trial. Despite not liking Kenneth, Paul actually wrote a letter on his behalf. Kenneth was convicted, so I'm not clear whether this was a character statement sent for the trial or if it was the sentencing period when others are allowed to speak for either side in an attempt to influence the final sentence. Either way, it was a terrible statement. Paul essentially wrote that whatever happened had happened years ago and there was no reason for Debbie to still be so upset about it. That is just a psycho take. That is the sort of thing you write, and it's like, <laughs> if I if, so, if that letter's read out in court, the court should be like, let's look into that guy, because he seems like a psycho. Like, something's wrong with him to write that. 
That probably would have been pretty damaging if they weren't already 100% sure that he was the Scarborough attacker at this point. On February the 17th, Paul was finally arrested and brought in to be interrogated. They'd gotten a lot of information from Carla at this point. She even directed the police to Jane and Norma so they could give their stories. However, whoever interrogated those girls really dropped the ball from a tactical standpoint. The detectives essentially let the girls know that Carla was cooperating with the police and they believed she was just a victim as well. And knowing that could have a pretty strong effect on how Jane and Norma were going to describe the events. Some within the police were still suspicious of Carla, though it was now unlikely they were going to get any strong evidence against her from these girls. But what they did get was all the Christmas presents that Paul had given to Norma. When Paul walked into the interrogation room, it was staged to look like some big task force affair designed to take him down. There were all sorts of whiteboards and stuff with details about the case and officer assessments and whatnot, and spread out on the table that Paul sat down on were all the presents Paul had given to Norma. Paul was not impressed, and he just sat down and yawned. This was probably another tactical blunder. The whole staged room setup seems a bit over the top, and the presents from Norma were overplaying their hand a bit. They were obviously trying to scare him into thinking they knew more than they did, but it also gave away the fact that Carla returns on him. How else could they have known that Norma existed? After hours of getting absolutely nowhere, other than an enthralling conversation about Paul's burgeoning rap career, the interrogators flat out told him that Carla returned on him and was the best rat that they ever had. Except they didn't say her name. They had already been pressing Paul to implicate a second person in the murders, so they were trying to bait him into throwing Carla under the bus, but it didn't work. At 1.30am, Paul was put into a holding cell following his completely futile interrogation. There was still one more hope for the police to find evidence that they needed. Carla had told them about the tapes they made. If the cops could find those tapes, they wouldn't need to make a deal for her testimony. Two days after Paul's arrest, search warrants were issued for the house. However, the warrants were only being issued in regards to the Scarborough attacker case. The evidence linking Paul to the murders was too weak and didn't justify a warrant. Only items listed on the search warrant were allowed to be removed, which is pretty standard for a warrant. The warrant did include videotapes, but all tapes had to be viewed in the house to make sure they were relevant before being removed. Most important, damage to the house had to be kept to a minimum. The police weren't allowed to tear down walls looking for the tapes. The warrant was valid for 71 days, and on the third day of searching, police thought they'd found pay dirt. They came across a collection of tapes, but it turned out to mostly just been shows that had been recorded from the TV. There was one tape that showed Jane Doe being assaulted, but nothing that was going to link Paul to Leslie or Kristen. The police kept searching high and low for all 71 days, but the tape of Jane Doe was the only one that they found. 71 days? How big is this house? Surely like a team of police officers. I mean, they can't tear down walls, but... 71 days is a long time to look. By that point, Paul had hired a lawyer, Ken Murray, and was prepared to plead not guilty to the charges of kidnapping, aggravated sexual assault, and first-degree murder. On May the 6th, one week after the search warrant expired, Paul asked his lawyer to do a little favor for him. Ken went to the house that the police had spent two months searching and retrieved the tapes from the exact place that Paul told them they would be, and nobody else would have any idea that those tapes were in Ken's possession for the next 18 months. That is not a lawyer's job, right? Hey, hey, lawyer, can, hey, lawyer, can you go to my house and hide some evidence? The answer should be no! Right? With no tapes and lack of substantial evidence, the prosecution needed to secure Carla's testimony if they were going to convict Paul for the murders of Leslie and Kristen. They offered her an extremely generous deal in which she would plead guilty to two counts of manslaughter and serve 12 years in prison in exchange for her testimony. They also made the unusual move of putting a publication ban in place for both the trial and the plea deal. They claimed it was so that Paul could get a fair trial, but they really just didn't want anyone to know what was happening. 
But the publication bans in Ontario weren't binding in the United States, and news began coming in from New York. There was also a fledgling internet at this point, with details being spread all over Usenet newsgroups. When the public found out about what was happening, their first response was confusion over Carla's sentence. Yeah, these like, uh, we call them injunctions in the UK, where it's like the the person who's being like dragged through the papers or whatever will go to the courts and attempt to get an injunction to stop the papers publishing them. And there's been a few famous examples of this where like, you know, some famous celebrity or whatever has had an affair with like multiple people and they've successfully got an injunction in the UK. So there's nothing in the UK presses about this scandal. But then you go to like CNN.com or whatever and it's like plastered all over the front page. You're like, why isn't this being covered in the UK? And it's like, because we don't really have freedom of the press. <laughs> it's really bad. The UK for freedom of the press is weak. It's so weak. Or I should say the uh, right to privacy and the ease of getting injunctions, is it's less than it was back at, uh, a couple of decades or 10 years ago, but it's still like, it's way too much. Or when the public found out what was happening, the first response was confusion over Carla's sentence. If this is your first exposure to this case, you may be confused why Carla still received 12 years as part of a deal if she was just another victim of Paul's who was coerced and beaten into aiding him in his crimes. Up until this point, I've tried to only let you know as much as the public would have known at the time, though you actually already know considerably more than they did. Okay, so I think she's complicit in this. And uh, Kevin's just basically saying that she's going to be a lot more complicit than he's let on so far, right? Carla was being portrayed as a victim and an unwilling accomplice partly because many of those involved in the case believed it to be true and partly out of necessity. She was their main evidence against Paul, so she needed to be a credible witness. Even though some of those involved, including her lawyer, felt that there was more to the story than she was revealing, they needed her testimony to be able to hold up in court to convict Paul. The only thing that could impeach Carla's testimony was Ken Murray and the tapes. But Ken wasn't an experienced criminal lawyer, nor was his co-counsel. He was in way over his head, and with Paul trying to convince him to destroy the tapes, it was all just too much. Ken met with a much more experienced criminal lawyer, John Rosen, to offer him the case. John was well known for his ability to get clients off completely or get them dramatically reduced sentences, so he seemed like the perfect person to go to. John was a bit hesitant about the offer. Sure, it was a high-profile case that would only add to his notable reputation, but why did Ken really want to stop defending Paul? Ken had told John about the tapes in his possession, but not what was on them. That obviously couldn't happen until John was officially signed on as Paul's lawyer. The only hint as to why Ken wanted that came out in the form of a phone call from one of John's friends. The friend was a fellow lawyer who'd coincidentally been contacted by Ken to represent him. When a lawyer wants to not only drop his client but needs to hire his own lawyer, that's a bad sign. John's friend obviously couldn't go into details, but he said that Ken had hired him over an ethics issue. You know, the ethics of withholding vital evidence from police for a full year and a half. Against the advice of family, friends, and the partners at his law firm, John decided to take the case for one simple reason. He needed to know what it was Ken knew that had him in such a state. After meeting with Ken and Paul in jail, John was officially made his counsel, and Ken handed the tapes over to him. Paul had wanted to destroy the tapes, and Ken wanted to use them to impeach Carla's testimony. But after seeing what was on those tapes, the only thing John wanted to do was cry. He immediately handed them over to the police, and the truth came out as public perception took a sudden and dramatic turn. People have been asking how the victim of an assaulter and a murderer could be forced to spend 12 years in jail for testifying against a monster. But now the tapes were out of Ken's possession, they instead wanted to know why Carla wasn't going to die in prison where she belonged. The plea bargain came to be known as the deal with the devil, and it is one of, if not the most, controversial plea deal in Canada's legal history. The deal with the devil. 
Carla had a much more ordinary upbringing than Paul did, though that's an awfully low bar to be clear. Her father, Carol, was a traveling salesman and an alcoholic, and uh, when he drunk, he would become verbally abusive, especially towards Carla's mother, Dorothy. Whenever they got into arguments, the three daughters would comfort each other, and often hid in the basement. Carla was born with severe asthma and spent a lot of time in hospital at an early age, though it's largely believed not to have affected her development. Even as a child, she was obsessive and controlling, spending an immense amount of time on her appearance from an early age. If friends came to play with their dolls or something, Carla had to control every aspect of what they were doing. If her friends were playing wrong, then playtime was over and they could leave. She was also an exceptionally bright student. Paul had done well in school, but Carla was definitely his intellectual superior. She had a borderline genius IQ and loved to read and learn. Teachers loved her, and in fact, everyone loved her. But she didn't love them. Carla was regarded as being extremely moody, with people never sure which version was going to show up each day. Her favorite pastime seemed to be upsetting people, as if their fear and sadness was sustenance for her. She became very into the occult as a way to scare people even more, and it was said that she always knew exactly what to say to someone to destroy them emotionally. In one rather colorful example, she told a classmate that she wanted to draw dots all over his body, play connect the dots with a knife, and then pour vinegar over his wounds. Holy shit. I mean, that's the sort of thing where it's like, okay, <laughs> edgy teenager or psycho? And in this case, psycho. Carla also began dressing in all black, with lots of black nail polish and dark makeup, and she dyed her hair various punk colors. It was a typical goth punk phase that a lot of kids go through, so on its own, it wouldn't be overly concerning. However, she also began cutting designs into her arms and filling the cuts with black nail polish. Um, to a psychiatrist you must go. Then there was the hamster. Oh my lord. Carla was supposedly an animal lover, but she wound up killing her friend's pet hamster, theoretically by accident. She created a parachute for the hamster, using a pillowcase, and threw it out of the window. While a little unsettling, that's not necessarily a red flag on its own. Uh, hurting animals is a, it's, it's certainly a, an orange flag. Kids get curious and experiment with things. How old was she? And this wasn't the craziest idea. You could buy G.I. Joe with parachutes, so clearly this was the sort of thing that intrigued children. Okay, I'll let it go, but if she, just keep an eye on her, make sure she's not torturing cats or something. Of course, anyone who ever owned a toy paratrooper could just tell you that the parachutes were pretty shit and rarely worked. It's weird that Carla would have thrown a hamster out of the window without testing the parachute on a Barbie doll or something first, but smart kids could act impulsively and without foresight as well. It's only what happened after that that makes it particularly unsettling. Two weeks later, Carla came back to her friend's house to dig up the hamster because she wanted to see what it looked like while it was decomposing. Oh my god, I found a dead bird the other day. I was at my, uh, got a little house in the countryside, and it has these, like, big glass windows on the second floor, and on both sides. So, like, you know, sometimes birds will, like, they'll think they can go directly through. And this has never happened before, so it's, we never thought it was a problem or anything. But I just, we, we pull up in the car to the house, and there's a big bird. It's, like, a good 50 centimeters? No, 30, 40, like a foot and a bit long bird, just like dead down there. I'm like, oh, and it's like partially decomposed and stuff. And I'm like, oh, gross. So I get a rake and I throw it in the forest. <laughs> Thanks, Simon, for that wonderful story. There, it was a beautiful bird, though. It had so many nice feathers. It was like blue and black and white. It's a nice looking bird. I mean, apart from the decomposing bit. Now I'm sounding like a psycho. <laughs> Look at that beautiful decomposing bird. There were all sorts of anecdotes from her early life that we could talk about that tow the line between someone trying too hard to be edgy and possible signs of psychopathy. Like when she signed someone's high school yearbook by writing, Death rules, death kicks, I love death, kill the f***ing world. 
yeah, I'm like, I'm leaning hard towards edgy teenager with something like that. I'm leaning less hard towards edgy teenager with digging up the hamster to have a look at it. But there was one event from her childhood that was almost certainly the most formative for her as it would relate to her relationship with Paul. Carol would occasionally stop by Dorothy's work and knew many of her co-workers, though they largely thought of him as a creepy pervert. When one of Dorothy's co-workers got divorced, Carol showed up at her door and said that he loved her and wanted to leave his wife for her. The woman, understandably, said no, and that should have been that. Maybe it would have been, had Dorothy not gotten involved. After finding out what had happened, it was Dorothy who knocked on the co-worker's door next. She explained that Carol wasn't going to leave her and didn't love the woman. That was obviously just something he needed to get out of his system. Okay, not appropriate. In a shocking example of porn movie logic bleeding over into the real world, Dorothy invited her co-worker to come over and have a threesome with them. That way, Carol could get it out of their system and the marriage could get back to normal. That sounds healthy. <laughs> so that's exactly what the three of them did. Carla was aware all of this had happened and seems to have influenced her perception of how supposedly healthy relationships work. And again, just a reminder, don't f*** up your kids. If you're having a threesome with the man that your husband wanted to have an affair with, don't tell your child! Hide that from them, for God's sake. By high school, Carla was already experimenting with drugs and sex. She was one of the most popular and well-liked girls in the school, which is a bit of an aberration. It's not very common for a goth kid to somehow become the top of the school's social hierarchy, but that's where Carla was. She was even the leader of a very own clique of mean girls, the Exclusive Diamond Club. The goal of these girls was simple. Find a rich older man to buy them a diamond engagement ring. And you can sure as hell bet that Carla was bragging to her friends the moment she met Paul. I mean, he's an accountant at PwC. He earns a good living. He's not rich. All the boys she had met before bored her. She, I guess she, he could appear rich like a 17-year-old, because of course he's, what, six years older than her? Let's not forget about that weirdness. All of the boys she'd met before had bored her. She'd been controlling and domineering her whole life, and she always got what she wanted. Her boyfriends would never challenge her, and they certainly wouldn't indulge her intense sexual fantasies. Carla had owned that pair of police handcuffs for years before she met Paul, but no one before him would have even considered using them on her. She believed she had found her perfect match. Now, this episode is already going to be long enough. <laughs> Yeah, we've been here a long time, Kevin. So we aren't going to run through every detail of what happened again with added perspective from Carla, but we are going to hit the highlights. To start, Carla told the police that Paul didn't tell her he was the Scarborough attacker until after their honeymoon, but that's just not true. When Paul was first brought into the police station to be questioned and gave his DNA samples, Carla decided they needed to be cautious, not with their behavior, that they need, but they needed to prepare alibis for Paul for the dates of the attacks. The couple went to the library to look up the dates of his attacks in the archive newspapers, and they began making a list of all the dates that they'd need to come up with alibis for. While they were doing that, Carla realized that they needed to pick up some things from the store, so she wrote down a grocery list on the same piece of paper that had all of the dates of the Scarborough attacker attacks. Not only was this evidence that Carla was aware that Paul was the attacker for most of their relationship, but one could argue her decision to write both lists on the same paper showed that she found them equally mundane. Oh, yeah, I wouldn't have thought about that. I just think it's sloppy. There was also the victim from the parking garage, the one whose testimony the police largely disregarded. The reason that the police didn't think the victim's statement made any sense is because she thought she saw another person there. In the shadows behind her attacker, the victim swore she saw a blonde woman holding a video camera. The 14-year-old girl who was up early to practice rowing had also been distracted by a blonde woman driving by and waving at her. Oh, these things are tied together. 
Oh, I see. Carla's friends were right as well when they suspected that Paul was putting something in their drinks. Carla had already started formulating her plans, so she gave Paul crushed up halcyon to put in her friend's drinks so she could see how much it would take to knock somebody out. And of course, then there was Tammy, Leslie, Jane, Kristen, and Norma. Carla didn't seem to care if Paul used other girls as toys, she actually seemed to enjoy it. There were only two things she hated, Paul doing it behind her back instead of including her, and the idea that one of these girls would steal Paul from her. Some people believe that either knowingly or subconsciously, Carla killed Tammy intentionally. She knew how dangerous the halothane was, but she put it right against Tammy's face. And when she called 911, she already was more worried about destroying evidence than about the safety of her sister. Carla was speaking to the 911 operator when she poured the halothane down the drain and disposed of the remaining halcyon. If you recall, when the police officer was speaking to Paul, Carla and Laurie got the call from the hospital that Tammy had died. Laurie ran upstairs crying, and the officer went to console her. But what was Carla doing? Was she in tears over the loss of her youngest sister, or trying to be there for her older sister? No, she had more important things to do. She had to get her story straight with Paul. When the police officer came back downstairs, he discovered that Carla had taken the halothane rag and the blankets that Tammy had vomited on and put them in the washing machine and turned it on. When he saw what she was doing, he ran to try and stop her, but it was too late. Carla had washed away the evidence. This wouldn't have mattered if the coroner did a proper autopsy instead of calling it an accident, though it still would have said a lot about Carla's mental state. Next, there was Leslie. When Paul brought Leslie home, he excitedly ran upstairs to tell Carla, but told her to stay in bed and be quiet for a bit. Carla was not going to be left out, so she instead followed him and watched from the stairs for a while as he assaulted the young girl before eventually going back to bed. When Carla came downstairs the next morning, what she saw infuriated him. She didn't care that the man she was marrying in less than two weeks had kidnapped a 14-year-old girl. She didn't care that he had bar-worded her. But sitting on the table, after having been used the night before, were a pair of champagne flutes. These weren't just any champagne flutes either. These were the good ones. They were the special, expensive pair of flutes that had been ordered from France for her and Paul to drink from at their wedding. Carla could barely contain her rage, so she did the only thing that she could do in that situation. She left Leslie alone in the house with Paul to continue being tortured while she took the dog for a walk to clear her head. When she got home, she still wasn't ready to deal with Paul yet. She decided to go upstairs and continue the book that she'd been reading. American Psycho. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, could it be, like, more cliched? Because of the way they disposed of Leslie's body, there was never any way to determine her actual cause of death. According to Carla, Paul choked her with a black electric cord. According to Paul, Carla poisoned her with a lethal dose of halcyon. With Kristen, we do know that the cause of death was strangulation, but we don't know which one of them did it. They each claimed the other did, and neither of them seems to be budging on that story. But what we do know is that Paul left the house multiple times while Kristen was there to go and get them takeout and rent movies. Carla portrayed herself as a helpless victim and an unwilling accomplice, but she was in the house alone with Kristen. She could have plugged the phone in and called the police, or she could have untied Kristen so they could leave the house together, but she did nothing to help Kristen. Instead, she turned on the six o'clock news so Kristen could see her father begging for her life. When Paul and Carla were going to visit her parents for Easter, Paul claimed that he wanted to leave Kristen tied up for when they got back. He said that he didn't want to kill her, but Carla insisted. The girl had seen their faces, seen their house, and knew Carla's name. She was a loose end, and leaving her alive when she could potentially escape was too much of a liability. Then, of course, there was Jane, a girl who Paul was unlikely to have ever known existed before Carla brought her over. Carla chose Jane, both because of her age and because she looked so much like Tammy. The first night that Jane came over, Carla had said her husband wasn't going to be home, which was true. She sent him away so she could prepare a surprise for him. 
After Jane had been dosed with Halcyon to fall unconscious, Carla called Paul and excitedly told him to come home so that she could present him with his new wedding gift. But when Jane got sick from the halothane that was used to keep her asleep and Paul refused to let Carla drug her anymore, things started to get out of control. Carla began getting resentful because she felt like she was losing Paul to Jane. It was the same problem that she'd had with Norma, who Paul also refused to let her drug. Carla didn't like when the victims were willing. She felt they were supposed to be toys for her and Paul to use, not actual people who could drive a wedge between her and the man she thought was her perfect husband. Paul always seemed to start pulling away from Carla when these other girls came to the house willingly, and it was something that she couldn't accept. While none of this was known to the public when the deal was made, much of it was known to the police. She was completely emotionless when she told police about the abduction and torture of Leslie Maffey, until she mentioned those champagne flutes. It's why they and the prosecution wanted the plea deal and the trial to take place in complete secrecy. But then John Rosen saw the tapes that brought him to tears. Then the police saw them. Only the audio was played in open court, while Carla described from the stand what was going on. But behind closed doors, the jury had to watch the video as well. Oh man, f- being on a jury. Jesus. What they saw was not just Paul R-wording all those girls, but Carla as well. In some of them, Paul would direct her or bark orders at her, but she mostly just did what she did on her own. And according to everyone that saw them, she couldn't have looked happier. Jesus Christ, do juries really have to watch stuff like that? That is shit that is never going to leave you. God damn. Glad I live in a country without juries suddenly. The jury watched Carla perform sex acts on her own sister, on the two young girls that just wanted to be her friends, and on the strangers that she and Paul abducted, and they watched her do it all with a smile on her face. In the Fireside Chat video, it opened with the camera pointed at a naked Carla who gave Paul a drink before preparing to perform various sex acts on him. Among the first things she said while looking at his penis was, I love you, Snuffles. I loved it when you my little sister. There's a whole lot more of that, and it gets far more graphic than I'd care to get into. But among the things that she said are that they love little girls, that she thought 13 was the best age, and that she wanted to have four children with Paul so that he could have sex with them. This is like... This episode's just like gone from like one f***ing depravity to another. Some more gross stuff was said, and then the camera was turned off, and the tape started back up inside Tammy's bedroom. Paul was using the camera to look around, then Carla emerged from frame dressed in Tammy's clothing and pretending to be her. More gross stuff was said. They had sex while Paul said, I love you, Tammy, to Carla, and then Paul walked over to turn the camera off while Carla smiled and waved at the camera. Based on how the dialogue went, there's an argument to be made that Carla was essentially following a script. Only the transcripts are available, not the audio. As soon as Paul had used up his last appeal, the tapes were all destroyed. That's absolutely what should have happened. But since I can't hear the audio, I can't make a judgment call as to how Carla sounded. I'll have to defer to those who did see the videos. And they agreed that Carla seemed to be a very active and willing participant. Twelve years in jail for what you did is a travesty. Are you free now? Are you free now, you piece of s***? My opinion. The open question. There are a few commonly debated questions surrounding this case, since the full truth of what is uh, what happened is still unknown. The first question that always comes up, which is pointless to debate, is which one of them was worse? 
This is unnecessary. You don't need to debate which one of them is worse. Unless you're firmly of the belief that everything Carla did was the result of her continued abuse, which I am not, me neither, then it doesn't matter who's worse because they're both f***ing horrible and they absolutely deserve to die in jail. Agreed, Kevin. Couldn't agree more. The somewhat more interesting question is who actually killed Leslie and Kristen, and would Paul and Carla have still become murderers if they'd never met each other? They were both clearly disturbed, but they seemed to feed off one another, bringing out the worst in each other. If they never met, would either or both of them have ended up killing? I think the easier question to answer is Paul. Without Carla, I don't believe Paul would have killed anyone. He was a brutal, sadistic, R-worder, but when Carla wasn't involved, he always let his victims go. Even the one victim he stabbed was something that didn't happen until after he met Carla. He was brazen in his crimes, never hiding his face, and when he brought the hitchhiker home to assault her, he dropped her off afterwards. Obviously, I know that crimes can have a tendency to escalate, and there's a strong chance that eventually this would have not been enough for Paul. Given enough time, it's possible his crimes may have escalated to murder, but he was never going to get that time. He had spent years being careless, and despite all of their blunders, their police were still going to get the DNA results back when they did and arrest him. Yeah, and I think, like, there's a clear, yeah, crimes escalate, but here there's a clear inciting factor. Carla. We also know Paul's dream of having his virgin farm, and he wouldn't have been able to accumulate sex slaves if he kept killing them all. He'd even forbid Carla from drugging girls after seeing how dangerous it was, which is one of the things that leads me to believe that Carla was the, own, was the one to actually kill Leslie and Kristen. She seemed far more concerned than Paul was with not getting arrested and also hated that these girls were pulling his attention away from her. But whether or not Carla would have become a murderer regardless is really hard to say. When they were given psychological evaluations, Paul scored a 35 out of 40 on the psychopathy checklist. To give an idea of just how high a score that is, John Wayne Gacy scored 27, Jeff Jeffrey Dahmer scored 23. Paul was a full-on clinical psychopath, but Carla only scored a 5 out of 40. She was considered a malignant narcissist, but doctors also said she was a diagnostic mystery. Yeah, because she's smart. Like those psychopathy tests or whatever on narcissism tests, you can easily know what the correct answers are, and you can just give different answers. Like if you don't, if you take the psychopathy test, or maybe if you're a psychopath, you just don't know. But no, it's just, you know how to fake it. Of course you know how to fake it. Countless experts have examined Carla, and no one can come up with an answer. She's able to present herself as a typical functioning person, but there's a giant black hole inside her where her sense of morality should be. When she gave the police a tour of her house, detailing the events that took place during the kidnappings, Carla kept getting distracted. In one sentence, she'd say how this is the spot where Paul performs some awful act of torture upon Leslie, and in the next sentence, she'd ask the police if they would be careful not to damage her furniture. With no accepted diagnosis for Carla, it's difficult to predict what she may have done without Paul in the picture. It's been proposed that she has hybestophilia, also known as Bonnie and Clyde syndrome, in which someone is attracted to people who display dark triad personality traits. If this proposed explanation for Carla is the case, and indeed many of the possible explanations for Carla's behavior, it's possible that if it wasn't Paul for whom she did these things, it would have been someone else. Aftermath on September the 1st, 1995, Paul was convicted on numerous charges. He was sentenced to life in prison without parole for at least 25 years, but he was designated as a dangerous offender, making it unlikely he'll ever be let out. Excellent. He first became eligible for parole in 2018, but his request was denied. Excellent. His second application in 2021 was also denied. Brilliant. There's no reason to believe any future requests for parole are going to have a different result, and at least one of the monsters in today's episode will rot in prison where he belongs. 
Paul's former attorney, Ken Murray, was charged with obstruction of justice for concealing the tapes for so long. He was acquitted in 2000, though the case raised a lot of ethical questions about Canada's legal system. Yeah, dude, you can't just go and grab the tapes for your client, surely? Although apparently he was acquitted, so that's okay? While the acquittal was surprising to many, it wasn't really a bad ruling for reasons that are way more technical than we need to get into. Oh, okay, so maybe you can. I don't know. I'm not an expert. Fine. And then, of course, there's Carla. She served 10 years of her sentence in a maximum security prison, with a couple of years in the middle being spent in medium security. While in prison, she entered into a relationship with a fellow inmate who was a serial killer, learned to speak French, and obtained a bachelor's degree in psychology. After being released in 2005, she changed her name and moved to Quebec, where she was far less known. She had divorced Paul after deciding to cooperate with the police, so she also wound up getting married again after prison. This time, her husband would be the brother of her lawyer. They moved to the Caribbean, but have since returned to Quebec, when no Nobody is happy to have her around. She currently lives a mostly normal life with her husband, three children, and the large social media network called Watching Carla Hamolka that attempts to document her every move so the public can be aware of what she's up to. I'd say that they were being overzealous were it not for the fact that in 2017, Carla had been volunteering at an elementary school, presumably the one her children attended. The day after that story broke, the school banned her from volunteering. I'm normally against vigilantism, but since only one of these monsters was sentenced to life in prison, it might be good that people are making sure that the other is kept on a very tight leash. The only problem is that that's exactly what she's into. Oh, Kevin. <laughs> you ended the episode like that. You really did. God, we've been here a long time. This has been woof, one despicable, horrible thing into another, and my mind feels scarred. I'm not as scarred as those jury members, though. I had to watch those videos. That's just something I never want to think about again, and I'm going to go have my lunch and try not to do that. Um, think about that ever again. Thanks for watching or listening, and I'll see you next time. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.